Hello, and welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and today we are in Yakult, Washington, at the Western States Rendezvous, a traditional bow shoot. And today joining me is Clay Hayes and Carson Brown. Uh, how are you gentlemen doing today? Doing awesome. Yeah, Glad doing to be well. here. Thanks for having us. Both these guys are um, self-bow guys, really uh, talented boyers. They're a crack shot with their equipment, and I'm really excited to have them together and to uh, talk traditional archery today. Clay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us a, a little bit about you and Twisted Stave Media and whatnot. All right, so uh, yeah, I started Twisted Stave about five years ago, um, and really when it started, I didn't know what I was going to be doing. Uh, I started with bow building videos, and that got, uh, got really popular. And then I started making videos about, you know, other aspects of traditional archery, trying to just put information, you know, good quality information out there uh, to help folks either make their own equipment um, or make the transition from compound to uh, traditional. Uh, I've done a lot of other things with uh, video production, done a, um, a series called Backcountry College with uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and then you know, that kind of expands even uh, into more um, uh, areas of uh, woodsmanship and, and camping and things like that. So I've uh, been doing that for the past uh, five years, kind of on the side. And then um, what pays the bills is I'm a wildlife biologist. So, And you're a wildlife biologist for which state? Idaho. Idaho. Yep. And uh, you're, I know you're not from Idaho. You're from Florida. Is that correct? Yeah, I grew up in northwest Florida. Um, went to moved to Mississippi for a couple of years when I was doing my uh, uh, grad school, and then uh, came out to Idaho in 2007 for the first time, and never looked back. Was uh, Idaho your first choice? How did you choose Idaho? Uh, I don't know. I'd never been to Idaho before we came out here, um, and I knew I wanted to be at that time. I wanted to be somewhere around that Greater Yellowstone system. And so I ended up in Idaho Falls. Uh, we were, you know, we were probably from West Yellowstone. I guess it's about an hour and a half, two hours. Um, but, uh, I mean, we were just into great, I mean, the fishing down there, the fly fishing is unbelievable. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I just looked at a map and said, let's go there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I haven't yet to spend much time in Idaho, but it's uh, in my near future plans for sure. Uh, so Carson, uh, you're uh, Oregon born. Uh, yep, born and raised in Jefferson, Oregon, and uh, shooting a stick bow my whole life. But uh, just got into the self bow thing about six years ago, and uh, got bit by that bug pretty hard. I'd made all my other, you know, I've been making arrows and arm guards and quivers, you know, ever since I've been shooting bows and arrows. But uh, the bow wasn't something you really made yourself, you know, you had a custom bow or make your bow or, sure. or, or you found one used or whatever. And, and, uh, and then once I made my first little vine maple bow, it was, it was all over. Vine maple is the, the first stick? Yeah, just because it was accessible and I wasn't worried about screwing up a nice stave. And, sure. And, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty pathetic looking back, you know, at that <laughs> first bow as well, you know, just carved out. It looks like a popsicle stick, like, you know, the limbs are shaped like popsicle sticks and it, it, uh, you know, it's got it's hangy as all get out, but uh, I still remember flinging that first arrow in the backyard. You know, which was probably going like about eighty feet per second or something. But, right. <laughs> but uh, it was like, oh man, I did that. You know, I made that bow and it. It didn't it break. Did that. No, it didn't break. It still, it can still hold the string, but uh, 
you know, I pull it down. Uh, I teach bow making workshops, and that's one I'll I'll pull down as kind of an encouraging thing when people are making their first bow. I'll show them that thing, and like you know, this is this is where I started, and, mm-hmm. and I think that takes some pressure off. But so so I I myself have not shot a self bow or built a self bow yet. It's uh, also my future bucket list of plans, and and uh, um, I imagine my first bow is going to be built under Carson. Uh, he's a friend, good friend of mine and, and close by, and he actually has a bow building school, so he's doing this for a living. So I definitely am excited. You could call it a living. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's getting him by, and uh, he's enjoying it, I imagine. Uh, yeah, enjoy it a lot. Yeah, so, so and the fir- first time I met Carson, uh, I was at a bow shoot. I, I think it was the Pope and Young shoot. Carson came walking in, and it was hot out, and, and uh, I like to tell this story. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, but I was sitting with my wife, and... Carson uh, had a big leather arm guard on, and uh, I had never really seen anyone with a self-bow before. And I knew what they were for sure, definitely. And uh, that Osage caught my eye, and he had the self-bow and, and uh, these wood arrows, and I, I was mesmerized by it. And my wife was like, are you checking that guy out? <laughs> and uh, I, was, I didn't really say anything, and she was like, earth to James. And uh, she's like, do you have a man crush on that guy? And I was like, you know, she's never asked me something like that before. And I was like, I think I do. <laughs> yeah, I think I do. And so I was, uh, I was, I was totally uh, drawn to uh, wanting to talk to you about, about your bow and stuff. And um, come to find out, you know, Carson is uh, born and raised in traditional archery. And he's got uh, uh, two uh, brothers that are uh, also super cool guys. Yep. And um, so I'm just really happy to uh, be friends with the Brown Boys. Um, so we're we're happy to have you, James. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. You don't know how much trouble you're in when you make that first self boat. You're you're gonna. It's all gonna be over. Yeah. So and and we're putting that black tail away. Yeah, and then to to <laughs> a, a extend on that, I, I found uh, I found Clay uh, on YouTube, and uh, my first exposure to Clay was uh, a film he put out called Untamed. I, I imagine. A lot of people, I hope everybody has watched it. The film, I, I, I want to publicly just thank Clay. I, I've, I've thanked him before, but the film means a lot to me. Um, it really, uh, it, it, it was almost like emotional watching it. it I cried, and I'm not joking. No, it, it, <laughs> I, it, it was. It was really I, emotional to watch it. I Your little boy shooting his bow and arrow in the backyard, you know, just running around, no shirt and jeans flinging arrows i mean I, I it just i don't know it it's it struck a chord with me and i i got choked up and teary over I, it i did too and i and i watched it like 10 or 12 times in a row <laughs> and uh it, it made me feel like it, it really explained my feelings because i'm surrounded by modern um, archers m- compound hunters i get questions all the time like you know why are you forgoing the technology what, what is this all about? What do you have to prove? And uh, I, I couldn't explain mm-hmm. how the stick bow made me feel. When I watched the film, it was like, this is why I do what I do. This is why uh, I choose to forgo the technology. You know, in a nutshell, it was like you just hit the nail on the head and you hit it hard. And uh, it hit me hard. And, and I was like, I'm not alone in this. And it, it was really special. So, so thank you very much clay because i know that was a lot of hard work on your part putting yourself out there like that and uh yeah thank you yeah Yeah, thank you clay yeah i did i worked on that film for a long time you know i did most of the filming uh myself for that um and so it took me a long time to accumulate that footage but 
you know, that film ended up, the, the final film ended up like completely different than I, I had started the editing process, you know, probably a year and a half earlier. But, you know, I was just, I was just putting out what I, the way I felt about it. You know, I wasn't really worried about, you know, reaching other people, but I guess in doing that, um, I, you know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of folks say that same thing that it, it, it really, it seems to reach a lot of folks, not just in the traditional community. I mean, I, I've had, um, I've had rifle hunters come up to me and it's not a, it's not a film that's like specific to it's of all, it's all traditional archery and it's bow making and things like that. But I think there's things in that film that speak to, you know, anybody who is really, um, consumed with hunting well i've used it as a tool not i mean not i don't need to uh um convince anyone outside of my circle but for my my friends that i do care about that are hunting with modern weapons i've shared that with them and even if they couldn't relate completely they could see my relation to it and they could understand me more and so um it's invaluable for sure yeah. Well, I've, I've, uh, I'm glad that I, that I put it out there. Um, and I'm glad people are, are enjoying it as much as they are. Yeah. It's, it's way awesome. And he touched on, uh, your son flinging the arrows. Um, so you have two sons. Yeah. I've got two boys, Coy and Finn. They're five and eight years old. Uh, they both have little self bows. Uh, they come out there and, and, and scrape on bows with me and, um, get them out in the shop and, yeah, we just, uh, you know, we live kind of out in the country, don't really have any neighbors, and we've got a, kind of a wood lot and a little creek uh, that r- runs through our place, and they'll take their self-bows, and, and I give them one arrow a piece, because uh, if you, you know, if you give them a quiver full, they will lose them all. Right. But uh, put judo tips on there so they don't lose them under the grass, and they just, we turn them loose. They go out there and, and uh, build forts and, and just spend hours out in the woods, just unsupervised, and, um, you know, they're... Um, having, having a good time. Yeah. I, I grew up, uh, living in, in the woods and, uh, I did not have a uh, hunting background. Um, but I definitely strung up, uh, uh, a stick with a string and, and shot sticks and I built forts and, um, you know, up into, uh, my teenage years, uh, it's what we did for fun. So it, it once I got into, uh, modern archery, it, it, it was a short two year stint. And then, uh, I found traditional archery. Uh, I feel like a little kid again. Uh, it, it really does. I mean, yeah. I I get out into the woods uh, with my longbow and and it, yeah, it's I I'm it's a, just a return to childhood uh, every single time. It's awesome. Yeah, I did the same type of thing. I mean, I I got into compound and I did I about two years um, and then I started making self bows, um, but. Uh, yeah, when you, like, like for me, shooting a compound was always kind of like something I had to do. You know, it wasn't like, you know, when you get, when you have your self bow and you go out in the woods and stump shoot or something like that. I just love shooting a traditional bow. And I, I never, I never had that with a compound, you know? Yeah, the transition for me was simple because uh, it was so much more fun to shoot. And then, uh, the uh, Norm Johnson and Chris Tipton, these guys took me under their wing and they took me to Brownsville to the uh, shoot, uh, the Pope and Young shoot that they hold every year. And I showed up and I was looking for the only two people amongst hundreds that I knew. And I kept running into folks and, and I felt like they didn't, they had me uh, pegged for somebody else and they were uh, engaging in conversation with me. And uh, it was so authentic. 
and I even told it some of them. I was like, I think you've got me mixed up for someone else. And they're like, no, brother, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's a high quality of people involved in traditional archery across the board. And uh, I'm hook, line, and sinker for life, yeah, uh, for that, sure. I've given um, like intro to traditional archery type type uh, seminars to folks, and that's one of the things that I really bring up uh, and stress to them is the community, the traditional archery community. I mean, you it, we're still a, a pretty small uh, community, and you can call up mm-hmm. the guy that's making your broadheads and talk to him. You can call up the guy that made your bow. I mean, you, these are all people that you come in contact with. You go to a, a function like this. And you're going to see people and, and be able to talk face to face with them. Whereas, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 who the hell knows if, right. uh, who, who made your, your Hoyt or your whatever. Exactly. Uh, our local, uh, compound shop, I go in there in the winters, January, February, March, we have a Wednesday night traditional only league and get together with my friends and fling arrows while it's pouring out rain outside. And the owner there, you know, he thinks we're kind of nutty. And he uh, is like, how can I get your guys' business? Like, who, who, where, do you, where do you get those arrows? Or where are you getting those broadheads? Or who makes that bow? And when he finds out that I'm buying them from the guy that made them, and it's direct, uh, he's, he's baffled. He's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, that's, I'm my, yeah you, you get your tab from the guy that made the leather maker. And the boyer made my bow. And, uh, you know, the my friend that makes strings, I get them from him. And... And uh, slowly but surely, you start to want to build your own stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I know some guys jump into it faster than others, um, but it, it slowly but surely, you know, you you're, you find yourself building your own arrows, building your own string, and 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 that desire to build your own bow. Uh, and, and it's in it's in me. It's I haven't made it there yet, but uh, I look forward to the day when it comes for sure. I think it's a way it's a way for us to kind of extend that season as mm-hmm. well. I mean. You're messing with your tackling. You're if you're you know building bows or building arrows or you know just tinkering with little odds and ends like arm guards and and things like that. It's just a way to draw that out um, instead of just you know like a, a lot of times uh, you know guys that aren't as into it you know maybe a week before the season they'll pick up their bow and and go and shoot a few arrows and then they go hunting and then it's over. Then they go watch the football game. Right, and so. With traditional archery, I shoot every day. So with a compound, I shot every day. And it became monotonous. It's like 12 ring, 12 ring, 12 ring. And some people would be happy with that. I was unhappy with that accuracy. Yeah. Um, it was. It, it became too boring. Automatic. It was boring. And with the traditional bow, it, it, you know, it, it, never, it never gets old. And well, you can't, there's nothing that, that's... that's taking you out of the shot i mean you have to be present for each and every shot unless you know if you're not you're not going to hit where you're aiming right pretty pretty honest reflection of your state of mind at that shot you know you you know real quick if you weren't paying attention or where your head was i don't know who said it but i i read a quote and i like it 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 said uh shooting a compound bow is learning a shooting system shooting a traditional bow is becoming the shooting system becoming the shooting system yeah and so uh yeah i really like that uh, a lot and i think the thing it, it is elusive and the more you practice the more consistent you are and but you'll still like for me i'll experience short runs where i'm just on and it feels so good to have that level of confidence and accuracy and and you might not have that again the next day and so you're you're always constantly moving towards that that uh 
next level yeah, of, of uh, confidence and yeah, you reap what you sow in this and, and yep. yeah yep and uh, over over time you know you might be frustrated with um, a level of accuracy that's that's not what you had the day before but but then you like try and look back five years and that you know now you're not happy with this level of accuracy that like is way better than when you right you know, were, were first like right pink and with with that so it's kind of fun as as you go through the seasons each year you you know, you put in that time, that effort, and get your equipment tuned and tweaked a little tighter, and uh, yeah, and just chasing that that uh, that somewhat elusive um, level of accuracy with the with the stick bow. It's never automatic. Now, Carson, you have children also. You have two, a boy and a girl. Is that right? Yeah, Taylor and Keaton. They're they're eight and seven now. So. Eight and seven, and um, tell us tell us a little bit about them. Uh they're they're um, they crack me up. They're they're. Uh, they both shoot bow and arrow. Um, Keaton has shot a bow and arrow uh, longer than his sister. She wasn't real interested in it at first. You know, I was like, ah, you know, kind of hurt her fingers and slapped her forearms. Like, don't want anything to do with that. Sure. Um, but my little boy is like, you know, kind of that that boy thing where it's just like, you know, this like throwing rocks, you know, flinging arrows. It's just uh, um, there's something there that you just want to do it more and more. And and, uh, and, and the, the thing with taylor i got her shooting a bow when i finally made her a self bow that was really light and uh pretty long for her so so it had a real smooth draw and she'd just draw it naturally back to her ear and uh so that was a little easier on her fingers and didn't slap her wrist and uh once i made that bow for her she's like oh okay this is this is fun i enjoy this and and she's a better shot than her brother really yeah she doesn't pick up the bow as often as he does on her own yeah so I uh, met your children at another traditional shoot. It was uh, over in Eastern Oregon last summer, this time of year, Stick and Sage. Uh-huh. And um, I had the opportunity to round up the kids, and I uh, took them all out. Um, me and I, I think there was 12, of, 12 little ones with me. Yeah, you had quite the little had troop with you. I had him. a little troop with me. Keaton. He uh, he was in shorts and he was barefooted and no shirt and and he is a little savage. I mean, he was cracking me up. We, we the kids wanted pictures with like every target just about. Yeah. So we would fling and get pictures and then start looking for arrows. And almost every uh, time I would take a picture, I'd look over and Keaton would have the bow in his mouth by the grip like a dog, and he'd be biting down on it and smiling and. Uh, yeah, he cracked. He's, he's always been a ham for the camera um, since day one. But, uh, but uh, you know, the funny thing about last summer is he got his first kill with uh, his little vine maple self bow. He uh, stuck a gold mantle ground squirrel, just perfect heart shot, dude, right behind the shoulder. <laughs> no way. I didn't awesome. get to see the shot. but you And know, how old is he? Uh, he? He just turned seven. Oh, and, man, that's uh, hot. Yeah, it was, it was cool to see his excitement. And, uh, oh, this is funny. So, anyway, the, we're, it's a campground. Sure. Squirrel, not take anything away from his uh, his hunt, but it was. And uh, anyway, we I had just finished setting up camp. Uh, we were there early for a family reunion, and uh, he, you know, I hear him, I got one, you know, and uh, and he comes running back with this uh, good sized ground squirrel on his arrow, and uh, and you know, I'm of course you know trying to snap pictures, all proud, and, and uh, he's like, let's eat it up, you know. So yes. we, we we cleaned it and uh, cooked it over some coals and. And, uh, you know, shared it, spread it out as much as we could between uh, him and his cousin. That's special. And uh, the funny thing is I, I um, got my first elk with uh, self-bow last fall. And uh, 
I'm all excited. We're okay. Well, I've got, I've got you my brought grandpa, that. You brought that my up. Dad, so I'm gonna want my brother. We're all we're all in there, uh, butchering this elk, cleaning it up, cutting it up, uh, cut our own meat up in uh, my mom and dad's garage. And I want my kids to come out there and, and uh, check it out. You know, hey, here's you guys need to see how this is done. And Keaton goes, Dad, I already know how to do it. Remember the ground squirrel? <laughs> Right, <laughs> that was a little different. Okay, well, you brought the the uh, your first bull elk with the with the. Of course, of course, I did. <laughs> so, so I want the story. Uh, oh, uh, tell, tell us the hunting story. You know, I, I I put that qualifier on there that that was my first elk with the self bow, but uh, to come clean, that was my first elk ever. So that was uh, okay. Then we definitely want the story. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was nice to have it finally come together. That was uh, that was fun. I was hunting with. Uh, Sherwood Shaft's business partner, Bob Marshall, over in uh, Desolation Unit in uh, Eastern Oregon. And um, anyway, we just split up, and I was hunting this ridge and uh, called in this little, um, well, actually, we bugled back and forth to each other just to make some contact as we were um, working our way down this um, down this drainage. And I'm up on the hill, and uh, a little uh, three-point bull stood up out of its bed and about 70 yards down downhill and uh, i was in a pretty good spot for a setup i had, I had slowed down and stopped because i got a nose full of elk and so i was just sitting there trying to read the wind see where this smell was coming from and sure enough you know bob had bugled down there and the agreement was i'd you know bugle back and so i bugled and this bull stepped up out of the bed so the wind was right and uh, i could see pretty clearly where i thought he would come up and step out and look like he'd give me a pretty good uh, 20 yard shot so i didn't really have to move much i just tucked down behind a down log and uh cow called a couple times and uh he started his way up and i think he caught a little bit of movement or something as i was kicking around the you know trying to clear some ground at my feet get ready for any adjustments i'd have to make and he paused and hung up and, and cow called again and he finally came up and sure enough he pops out right there just perfect 20 yard broadside shot and i was like i was ready i'd like you know had enough time watch him come in i kind of Got myself under control and picked a spot and was shooting this U-bow. Drew it back and was just, you know, just burning that that spot into my mind. Let her rip. And he, he was looking at me as he stood broadside. And he jumped the string and wheeled. And by the time my arrow got there, he was, you know, it, it hit the dust. And, you know, and uh, he, he was gone. I thought, oh, God. Clean know. miss. Clean miss. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it, I, I felt like the arrow was, was pretty well on, but he got out of there in a hurry. And that, that was my one reservation about taking that bow into the woods. It was this fancy double hollow limb thing, and it was a little loud. I felt like it just put a lot of sound out there when it came down. And uh, anyway, um, so I don't know if it was a movement or sound, but he he jumped the string pretty good and, and uh, wheeled out there. And Cal called him back in, and he came in, back in pretty hard. Had another arrow on the string, and he came and gave me the same exact broadside shot. And I took it, and I'm pretty sure I was on again. But again, he jumped the string, and took off no kidding cow called again and he comes right back in this time he comes up a little bit higher on the hill but stops probably about the same distance and he's a little bit quartered towards me i don't really have a shot but i've just got a got half draw and i'm hoping he's slowly gonna he, he looks a little twitchy he's on his toes and he looks like he's gonna turn and walk out of there and so so I'm, I'm i'm preparing to maybe make a shot as he turns to walk away and I'm easing back on, on uh, drawing back, drawing back, and he's not turning. And then finally he bolts, and I, I just kind of, nothing I could do but just kind of send the arrow off to the side harmlessly. And uh, 
he he took off out of there, and, and uh, at this time I think you know he was pretty spooked. He came in that time pretty spooked. I'm not gonna call him back in again, I, but I blow on the, this little cow call, little clamshell style cow call, and he comes uh, back in harder than ever. And he gave me he came up the side of the hill again, and and this time he uh, he stepped and gave me a front on shot at just inside of 20 yards, and this is my last broadhead arrow in the quiver. And I know front on shots are are not. Uh, well, some folks kind of discourage those, but uh, I, I don't see it as an unethical shot in any way. But uh, so I, I took the front on shot, and it, it was just you know he didn't flinch this time, and uh, they were just hit him right in the chest and uh, sunk to the fletch, and he didn't even tear out of there. He just kind of turned it and started trotting out of there, and then pretty soon you could hear him realize something something wasn't right, and he started trotting faster and then brushing around, knock, knocking brush around, and then just just went crashing just out of sight so that was i imagine he was that was dumb. a good feeling he was done pretty quick yeah he was done it went it ended up poking through diaphragm and getting into the you know i mean it, it took out quite a bit of vitals there and uh and uh you got what kind of elk call you using i gotta get that <laughs> yeah i think the good lord was with you that day yeah and that's the thing about carrying a nice nice cell phone to the woods they just uh they'll just put themselves up on the offering table for you <laughs> whisper uh, quiet well, yeah uh, but but those are good uh good they're made by a guy in idaho uh you can get them on ebay i can't remember the name of them but they're uh you look up the cow elk call on there and he's, he's usually uses like a yellow or orange plastic yeah clamshell they're, they're good calls they they make good, good natural sound and you've been hunting elk for oh gosh i probably that was probably my first arrow i flung an arrow at a cow elk when i was 14 just tickled her you know uh, with the f- fletch shot low and, and, and missed. And so that, that, that was when I was 14. I took a few years off, uh, you know, school and football were conflicts. And uh, so it was just hunting a weekend here and there when I could. And how old are you, Carson? 35 now. 35. So, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, once once I got back, I moved back to Oregon. I was out of, out of state, went to grad school down in Texas, and uh, limited hunting opportunities down there, a lot of private land. Anyway, got back to Oregon, was just like hot on elk hunting with my dad and my brothers. Went from a recurve to Howard Hill longbow and just loved shooting a longbow. And then and then somehow my eyes kind of opened up. I think it was finding that traditional boy's Bible volume one that I had bought a few years back for my dad as a present and and, uh, and then found it in his library and was just flipping through it and just kind of got, got the wheels turning. Started talking to folks who knew stuff about that. And, uh, and that's when I just, I don't know, just took like all i could think about was making bows and arrows so and that that's the book that got you um your your first knowledge yeah that's the the first one that i'd found and it's a it's a great resource but uh yeah it uh, gave me all the information that i needed to to get into bow building for sure that's awesome and so you built your first bow at what age oh that was about uh 2002 10 so you know 28 29 okay yeah awesome yeah it's probably 19 19 years old yeah and uh how long did it take for you to find success with your first self three years three years yeah i was um i was hunting down in in uh, alabama you know hunting whitetails and stuff and it was strange like uh i would i had buck fever like mad i mean i could i could hit squirrels like i did a lot of grace you know uh, gray squirrel hunting with my bow down there and i could hit a squirrel you know at, at 10 or 12 yards and mit, like completely miss a deer at five and it just like totally messed with my mind that was me 
completely. Yeah. Um, but when I finally put it together on that, that first deer I shot, um, it's like something, something broke, you know, and then I started putting it together and I've killed, I mean, I, I don't know how many, I've killed a bunch of pigs, a bunch of whitetails, you know, all sorts of, uh, small game with a self bow. Um, but down there, you know, you, your deer season is five months long and, and, you know, your limit is two a day. Hmm. And so there's tons of opportunity. Right. Yeah. Out West, you will get a 30 day season and, and hunt uh, almost every day of it. And and you need to capitalize on that one opportunity. I find one tag, one deer tag, and it overlaps with elk general elk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're competing. Yeah. And if you're hunting elk or you're hunting deer, you're trying to hunt both. And And if you get that, uh, that, that, that buck fever, uh, which, uh, I suffered from for a long time and you blow that one opportunity, uh, you're going to, it seems like, you, I feel like you gotta, you're going to have to hunt a whole bunch more to, to get a, a second opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it's real interesting. When, when did you, your first elk hunt then was when you moved to Idaho? Yeah, I think I moved, uh, or I, I first hunted elk, I think in 2008. And so I hadn't been hunting elk for very long, but you know, when I, when I first started hunting, I was in Southern Idaho, uh, elk hunting and just you know, completely new to it. I didn't know what I was doing and had opportunities where I should have, I never, I don't think I ever shot at an elk down there, um, but had opportunities where I should have killed elk, you know, just, and I look back on those opportunities now, knowing what I know now about elk and just, um, you know, feel very confident that I could have killed, killed an elk in in that situation. Will you uh, share an elk hunting story with us? Because I, I love elk hunting stories. Yeah. Um, so the, the, one of the best, uh, one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had in the elk woods, uh, I, I didn't get a shot at an elk, but it was one of those situations where everything, and then this was when I was hunting in Southern Idaho, didn't know what I was doing. You know, if I had found myself in that same situation now, probably could have killed a really nice bull, but, uh, we're hunting in Southern Idaho and I was, uh, it was in the evening and I was up on this ridge and saw a, 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 whole, a bull with probably a dozen cows. And they were probably, um, I don't know, half mile away. And it was just getting dark. So there was no way that I was going to get to them, you know, and, and make something happen before it got too dark. So I went back to camp and got up super early the next morning. Got up on that ridge and just caught them as they were just making their way back up into the timber. And so I dropped down there and got below them and just kind of cut their tracks and trailed them as they were moving up, you know, to their bedding area. And the thermals were perfect. You know, it was the, the uh, thermals were dropping down the hill and I got down below them and just kind of shadowed them. And I never did see them, um, until a little bit later on, but I was following, you know, they'd gotten into a wallow and there was mud and like fresh mud smeared on the, the vegetation, fresh tracks. I could smell them the whole morning and got up there about 11 o'clock and um uh had still not heard or seen an elk but i could smell them and i uh, i took my pack off and and started pulling stuff out to have lunch and this bull bugled from i mean right over a ridge and he was probably not but 100 yards from me and so i i took off my boots and i this was i i wasn't calling at all i like i was not confident in my ability to call elk or make a, a, a good elk sound at that time so I was just doing still hunting and so I creeped up kind of up on top of this little ridge there and I could see them down in this bowl and they're probably 60 yards from me 
cows, calves running all over the place, this big bull just making noises. Like I've never heard elk make the types of noises that they make when you're that close to them. And they're just making these deep kind of, I mean, you can almost feel the vibrations coming off this bull. And he's posturing, you know, he's got his head down, herding his cows around, chasing around all over the place, making these noises. And one of his cows breaks off the herd and comes right up to me and like circles around and she's walking right straight to me. And I'm, I'm sitting here with my bow and I'm kind of crouched down into the, uh, the snowberries. And she, she caught me by surprise and she was over this way. So walking right, you know, she was over to my right. And uh, there's no way that I could turn, you know, to get a shot because she's facing right onto me. And she walks right dead to me and stops and, like, looks down at me. I mean, her her head's, like, right over the top of me. And she looks down and she wheels and, and runs off. And for some reason, she didn't bark. Like, I, she must not have smelled me. She just saw something that was not right. Mm-hmm. And when she takes off this bull catches the bull's attention and he comes charging up the hill and comes around and, and makes a circle and stops like eight yards from me. And there's this big gnarly fir tree in between us. And I'm watching the bull through this fir tree. And he just, he kind of turns towards me and just lets out this yes. full on bugle. And, uh, and I was just like, Oh, I almost passed out. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but, um, he stood, he's standing there watching, you know, watching over this herd of cows. And, and the whole time they're kind of working down below me. Um, and for some reason, I, the, the thermals are still, uh, there was some weird phenomenon that particular day where the thermals are still moving down. They normally switch in about 10 o'clock in that country and start moving uphill. But uh, one of those cows gets down below me and, and catches my wind and barks and the whole herd just, you know, they're gone. And I'm I'm sitting there and it's like... Good God, that was unbelievable, you know. And I, I never got a shot at that bull, but just being that close to him, just you know, watching their behavior, um, hearing them bugle that close to me, was something that I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. That is what it's all about. I mean, that's uh, I love uh, deer hunting, but they don't scream in your face. Yeah. And uh, I've actually know uh, some uh, guys using compounds who seem to kill elk all the time at these long yardages, and they've never even experienced that. And uh, to extend my season and to have to, you know, uh, I like to say uh, I want to I get my shot when I can see the whites of their eyes. Yeah. Um, when you can smell that elk uh, and there's, it, it's, it's undescribable. you about them hearing your heartbeat coming out right. of your mouth, you know. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, that is, that is elk hunting yeah. uh, for sure. I mean, that that bull, you know, you, you can never say that, yeah, or you could say, yeah, I could have killed that bull with sure. a compound. But, you know, there's always things that, that happen. But, you know, he was within 40 yards of me for 10 minutes. And I I feel pretty pretty confident I could have put an arrow in him, uh, you know, had I had a compound. Um, and I like to kill elk. I, I, I mean, we, my family eats elk meat. We, we game, whitetails, all that stuff. But, you know. At the same time, I think those those experiences you you have like that, where you're just able to observe the animals, um, is has a, a tremendous amount of value. I mean, like I said, I'll remember that for for the rest yeah, of my life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've I'm guilty of passing on shots on legal elk uh, early, like first day, second day season, and it seems insane. And I'm not holding out for a bigger one. 
Uh, I'm holding out for... Don't want to end your season on day one. Yeah, I'm holding out for the adventure. I'm I'm holding out for the experience. And uh, I wouldn't dare go home and tell my wife. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I had one at 10 yards that I just uh, let walk by. Sometimes I've let them walk and I didn't even think about capitalizing i get caught up in the moment i it's can't opening. say i've ever done that <laughs> yeah uh, I'm, I'm, yeah I so want it too bad <laughs> well um I, i'm i'm kind of yeah i'm kind of a little bit past that phase because uh but having elk in my backyard and knowing that um i've got a 30-day season and even on work days uh, i have enough time to get off work and get into the elk woods and get on elk yeah. um is special and and it it's not the same. I mean, I like taking friends out, but it's not the same when you don't have that tag in your pocket and yeah, you're out yeah. there. It sounds like you need to, to whittle out a self bow, and then you won't pass those shots yeah, up. Maybe that's <laughs> right. the difference. <laughs> yeah, and uh, don't get me wrong. This, this is not like I pass on. Uh, it, it's happened a few times. Yeah. These are isolated situations. Uh, um, actually, uh, I had. Uh, some guys pushed some elk. They were hunting on the other side of drainage with a four-wheeler, and the elk were running towards me, and it was opening morning. And they kept looking back, and soon I had a herd of cows standing there looking back. And I could have easily uh, took a shot at any any of them, and um, I I just soaked it in. And it's just little times like that. And, then, and, and honestly, as soon as that ends, I'm like, Jimmy, what the heck were you thinking? Uh, you know, uh, so you know, I, I I think I regret it every time. Yeah. Um. So by no means am I the, some hunter that can just pass on illegal uh, <laughs> animals. I don't want to put that uh, perception out by no means. Yeah. Um, just get caught up in the majesty. Of I get elk. caught up in the moment of elk, and yeah. and, and I'm guilty of that for sure. And and I've also got caught up in uh, target panic, uh, buck fever so bad that. Uh, I can't even see straight to make it happen, mm-hmm. and and that that uh w- that's turkeys for me. I'm glad it hasn't hasn't cropped up in elk. For some reason, turkeys I just like I just lose all really control. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. I just like <laughs> well, you're and you're you're bow hunting them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I get that because you're so with a turk like elk, you can get away with a lot with an elk. You know, you can stand there, just stand up, and and when when they uh, well, and you can even draw on an elk you when they're make in full. Yeah. yeah, turkeys, no. Uh, and you I have, ma- I've been out of a blind. I haven't done oh, blind yeah. yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, or no pop-ups yet. Yeah. So yeah, you make a move on a turkey, screwed. and they are gone. <laughs> they don't hang out. They have zero curiosity. They spot movement. Oh yeah. Big now, guy. now I've never passed on a blacktail. Um, I I love uh, elk hunting is my favorite. It's number one. But uh, species-wise, blacktail are number one for me. They they do it for me. There's something uh, magical about that animal, uh, how elusive and nocturnal they are. Um, uh, I actually prefer blacktail meat over any other table fare. So, yeah, blacktail, uh, I've, I, I'm really good at missing them. <laughs> yeah. I'm really good at shooting right under them. Or, shooting between uh, their horns. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, there's any, any black, any, uh, any big game animal is a, is a good animal with a stick bow, absolutely. absolutely. But those blacktails, uh, they're, they're special. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys do much deer hunting? I do quite a bit of whitetail hunting right there around the house. We have pretty good, uh, like really good whitetail hunting up in North Idaho. Tons of deer, um, and I can I've got uh, access to some private property there close to my house. And then there's also a bunch of like uh, timber ground and stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, November, about, about November 14th in, uh, North Idaho and it's on. 
We yeah. start chasing pretty hard. Yeah, that that's a uh, uh, whitetails in Idaho are on my bucket list for sure. I have uh, plans to do it. Uh, hopefully, even next year or this year. Um, I I found myself blacktails are so limited. There's a few books out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few guys you can talk to. Um, but I found myself getting into tree stand hunting, and I've gravitated towards learning from the whitetail folks and trying to implement uh, those strategies on our blacktail deer, um, which I was able to uh, shoot a, a nice 3 by 3 blacktail buck this year uh, sitting tree stand, and it's a definitely a new passion of mine, uh, sitting ambush. And since I did all this research four blacktails uh on the whitetail deer uh I d- i've got to get out there and, and try my luck on whitetail deer now so what were you doing i mean how what's the standard method for hunting white bow hunting uh blacktails if you're not sitting in a tree stand? uh rattling is very prolific uh um, okay. so late, late season hunting late rattling r- rattling doe bleats uh grunting um you you it's kind of like bugling you try it and try it and try it till it works so they are when you get a buck to uh, respond to you, they're not calling back. No, they they show up like a ghost. Yeah, and um, I've ra- I've been fortunate to rattle in uh, quite a few bucks, and uh, I've yet to put an arrow in a buck that I rattled in. Um, I uh, I will look over, and there they are at like ten feet like a ghost they just appear out of nowhere yeah. and they're standing there looking at you and i've already got an arrow knocked sitting on the tree waiting and i often can get my hand on the on the bow and get my hand on the string and that's about as far <laughs> I, I have been able to get an arrow off or two uh actually three or four uh, but with no connection it's such a fast quick oh, yeah. uh situation um i picked up a really good tip from larry d jones in an interview i did with him for episode one and he talks about setting up. It's genius. I don't. In the Sal Albrush, it's a it's a really loud, waxy. So you can thick, hear them coming in. Right, and you you set up in that, and then you got a an, an inclination that uh, that they're coming in, and then you you'll have a half a shot at it, and it makes a, a ton of sense because we don't have like these woodlots with, uh, with like dried maple like all like you see uh, the whitetail guys where you can hear the deer coming in. We'll see. We have big fur stands. And uh, in a late season, it can be pretty wet and soft ground. Yeah, uh, when you're when yeah. typically when you're rattling. Yeah, and they they come in and with you do not hear them come in whatsoever, and so the compound guys do really well because the the buck will will run off and then they'll grunt them and stop them at a forty five yard shot and, and plug them and be mm-hmm. done. But you know that's not an option for us by no means. So yeah, the uh, the whitetails like a, a situation like that where you've got you know a deer coming in and they're looking at you. I won't even shoot at them. I don't care how close they are. They're just, I mean, their ability to turn inside out is amazing. I mean, they're, I shot at a buck one time when I first started hunting with a self-bow that he was probably no more than eight feet from me, but he'd come up over a ridge and he, he was like looking at me, uh, when I shot. And I think he was in the next County before my arrow cleared the bow. I mean, he was out of there. Yeah. Um, the, the buck I shot this year, I actually missed him the night before. Um, he comes in. He's on the tail of some does, and he doesn't even ever present a shot. He leaves with the does. For some reason, he comes back without the does, comes running up, and he stops, 
and I'm sitting there, and I grab my bow, and when I go up to to make the shot, I, I think my boots rubbed on each other, and I made this little, little my boots had made this noise, and he looked up at me, and uh, I uh, proceeded to shoot, and he just absolutely ducked the string. Oh, yeah. um, I was totally present for the shot. Um, I've uh, been able to shake that uh, buck fever um, due to uh, working with Joel Turner and his iron mine hunting, um, and he just totally ducked it and got out of there and i thought well there you go jim you just you blew it again <laughs> and i thought well i should probably try a different set um and what i did was uh i actually uh i sat in the same tree but i moved my stand uh, i just moved it four feet up and i moved it uh it was pointing to the west and i moved it to the north it gave me a little bit better cover uh, that way i felt like i was really exposed when he looked up at me i was like man he had me totally uh pinned and and as I look, it was a really good um, pinch point where a lot of things were coming together, and I already had that tree trimmed up, so I, I didn't really want to move trees, and I didn't really expect him to come back. But man, he came back in the next day, and it was the same type of situation. And um, you know, this time uh, I was able to shoot at him without looking, and and I'm I'm hooked on being able to have an opportunity at blacktails in that calm, relaxed situation. It, it seems to be the way to go about go go about it. Yeah, you definitely for the for the whitetails anyway. Um, they definitely need to be relaxed. Otherwise, I just Any I mean they're just way there. too fast. Yeah, that's one of the uh, I think advantages of a self bow that's uh, maybe not well understood is just how quiet they are compared to a lot of your modern glass recurves where you've got you know that string coming down hard on the limb mm-hmm. and you know very unnatural noise. I feel like self bows might have you know maybe they're giving up ten feet per second over your custom glass bow but um but they're quiet and i think that can uh, you know as, as as quick as a lot of animals are to jump the string that can be a have you run any of your bows through a chrono i have a few you know occasionally i'll stop in the pro shop i used to live close to a pro shop in uh, in salem and so i'd go in there and and my bows that i felt pretty good about you know i'd go in there and i'd, I'd with a 10 grain per pound draw weight arrow um, you know, so for listeners, you know, 60 pound bow, you know, 600 grain arrow. Um, the, the best I was getting was about 164, 165. Dang. But, uh, but that, that little Osage bow I was shooting today, um, that's definitely faster than, than, uh, a couple of those bows I put through a chronograph. I wouldn't be surprised. I could, I'm shooting a hybrid, uh, Colombian, uh, blacktail longbow, uh, his latest and greatest. And it's a smooth, uh, awesome shooting bow. It's, working well for me um and i i I put it through the uh chronograph i got 169 with a uh 50 pound draw uh with a 625 grain arrow yeah but that's that's big that's a lot of arrow for for, yeah yeah. so you know if you're 10 grains per pound you might be up in the 185 or something sure sure um but uh but you know, I've, I know some folks who've made some self bows that you know they're shooting one thirty five, one forty, yeah. and 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 then you know they're sending me pictures of this you know nice buck they got with them. I mean, it, it no, works, yeah, you know? speed doesn't kill. Well placed shots is what kills animals. Yeah, no speed to you know when you start getting excessive speed, you're you're actually encountering uh, more resistance on an exponential level. So if you look close into you know some of that, the physics behind the Ashby experiments and stuff, the and that's why you'll see it if you watch some of these hunting videos where this compound bow that's shooting a 350 grain arrow, you know, 
somewhere in the ballpark 300 feet per second will just look like it hit a wall when it hits an elk in the vitals and it's like what what's going on there well an arrow that's traveling twice as fast isn't encountering twice as much resistance it's encountering um, a factor of four uh, times the resistance so uh, any you know resistance whether it's raindrops air you know a twig um, you know rib bone it's 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 wanting to change directions or slow down decelerate um more so than than a, a heavier slower arrow yeah i, w- I would really like much to s- more so i would really like to see the departments uh across the board implement a uh, uh a mandatory weight on arrows like i think that that would really uh help uh archery out um all the way across the board if, if everyone uh had had like a minimal weight of 600 grains oh, 650 yeah. Um, because even these uh, modern not gonna get it though, because uh, no speed is what sells the latest and greatest. Yeah, the guys new, are the ca- new model. Guys are caught up in that, but I I know I know guys that do hunt with modern equipment that have finally figured that yeah. out, and it's it's all the difference in the world. Yeah, I, I I've seen a, a definite trend. You know, you, n- you used to never hear of guys shooting two blade, bro- you know, single bevel or anything like that on a compound, uh, and they always uh, at least the guys I were talking to tried to get a, a lightweight arrow to get that speed up but you know more and more uh the compound guys are, are starting to figure out that uh those little bit heavier arrows single bevel high foc um i mean geez you, you, can you imagine if you put a you know a 550 or 600 grain arrow through a compound with a single bevel you could blow through a brick wall with that thing yeah you, it, could, start no, shooting, you, you could aim for elk shoulders if you want. <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm not saying i recommend that but i mean that's that's uh, you got so much power behind that no so and, and i've seen energy. that uh, online uh where guys are punching through both elk shoulders with a setup like he just said 650 grain single yeah. bevel uh out of their compound or i actually know a guy that shot a blacktail that was getting whirly and um, he ended up uh, shooting him. He's a friend of mine. He ended up shooting him in the in the hams. Uh, That's where the arrow hit, and it was with a 650 grain arrow with the single bevel cutthroat head, and he blew right through it. And that buck hit both uh, femoral arteries. I mean, that buck was done. Um, and with his old setup, he would have just injured that buck, and that buck would have ran off more than likely. Um, so it, it becomes very forgiving. And like I said, I don't recommend those. He wasn't trying to take that right, shot. Right. It was actually a close shot, um, out of a ground blind. It's just the buck had, had moved on him, And, and so I think it would, it would help, uh, archery out completely, you know, to, 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 to implement something like that. And I think, you know, the other that, thing you battle is, is there's a, a lot of folks who want to be able to make that 80 to a hundred yard shot or feel like they can make yeah. that shot and they're not going to be able to do that with mm-hmm. a 600 and 700 grain arrow i i i, I don't i do not promote that by no means no, I, I, but i think they're going to get better penetration downrange. they're just going to have to not have such their pins so tight and they're going to have an actual arc on the arrow but i think once it gets there they're going to have a better chance getting in there i don't know the ins and outs of it but i think when you start getting to that range with that heavy arrow your pins are like yeah, I don't, know either. Like, I don't know either. Your pins are hitting your whisker yeah. biscuit or something. But I, I don't know. But. That that is something I think. Like my friend, I I educated him to run that heavy arrow, and I think like Clay said, he's he's starting to hear more and more guys, and I, that's definitely crossing over from our community. It has to be mm-hmm. the heavy yeah. arrows. Well, yeah. if you look at so so Colorado on their uh, Department of Wildlife uh, website has all of the Ashby information right on their website. I oh, mean, they, they do. They, they actively promote it. That's quality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so why we're on this topic, 
Uh, I've heard you on uh, several different podcasts, and that's another thing that uh, I love about you is, uh, you know, um, you know, we we respect everybody, but um, I'm I'm always trying to convert the next guy, and I, and I know you are too. Um, you know, come on over the the the, the water's warm, and um, you know that that I think is uh, something that I hope to uh, be able to do with the podcast. Um, is I want to promote traditional archery in a positive light, and uh, I want to um, bring uh, guys to the table that uh, have something to offer and to share this knowledge um, with the community that uh, this is a, a viable weapon, and it is um, it, it's it's a it's a great place to be. Yeah. One of, one of the things I encounter um, in trying to convert folks, there's I guess there's a, I don't know where what the root of it is but uh one of the arguments is well well those uh the traditional equipment just you're going to wound a lot more animals oh, with that yeah now what do you guys have to say towards that because uh, i know you've heard it too <laughs> yeah how long do you have <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I um i, I don't want to get too messy yeah i don't want to get too messy either I, I mean i think that there's there's wound rates um it becomes very personal and it's wound rates across every every single weapon um and you're going to see uh I think it's fair to say that maybe 95% of guys that are hunting big game uh, with archery tackle are using modern compound tackle. So, I mean, of course, the statistics might be higher because there's a way more of them and, and guys can can just brush those off and uh, and not have to put in the time with them. So, I mean, it's really hard to pin, pin that down. You, you know, it comes down to ethics and uh, shot placement and, and shot choices. And, and so, so let me tell you a story to kind of somewhat, uh, illustrate, um, my thoughts, but I was, uh, when I was in Southern Idaho, so uh, we, we have tremendous opportunity for elk in Idaho. And oftentimes you can buy an elk tag and hunt all of September, uh, with archery gear. And if you don't kill anything, you can go back later. Um, sometimes with a rifle for cows. And I was out, um, this was one of those one of those units, and I was out in a late cow hunt. This was a rifle hunt, and I don't I don't own a rifle, so I, I had my flintlock out there, and um, had found these elk and ended up shooting an elk um, one evening, and it was a huge herd. I mean, there were probably eighty animals in this herd, and it's it's kind of open country, broken up with uh, some dug fur on the north slope, sage on the south. It was kind of in the evening, so I quartered her up, hung her in a tree went back the next day to pack that animal out and when I was hiking up the hill to get this um, to get this elk out I hear a couple of rifle shots and it, you know it's very common to hear rifle shots at that time but I, after about the fourth or fifth shot I was like oh that's kind of it's a little bit strange um, and these best I could figure it was two guys who had gotten into that same herd of elk um, with uh, uh, with hunting with rifles, and by the time they got done shooting, they had shot 21 times. And I mean, to say that you're shooting 21 times at one elk, uh, probably not going to be the case. I mean, those guys were were flock shooting. Um, and just to dry, and, and you got to wonder about how many of those elk got hit. And then just to drive that point home, when I took the cow that I shot, when I took her home and butchered her, there was a slug in her, in one of her hams that was healed up. I mean, she was completely fine, but this was from some years earlier. 
And so you got to wonder, like, how many elk are running around out there with, with slugs in them. And I'm not saying that to be derogatory or anything towards rifle hunters. What my point is, is that there are guys out there in the woods who have messed up moral compasses. There's guys who they don't, I mean, they have no empathy for the animals. And if their comfortable um, distance of hitting a, you know, an eight inch circle is, you know, 300 yards on the range, if they see a bull elk standing out there at 400 yards, they're going to try it. You know, and those guys are going to be the guys that are wounding a lot of animals just because they are willing to push the envelope. They don't care. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got guys that are comfortable on the range where everything's perfect at 300 yards, and they're only ever going to take 150 yard shots. Mm -hmm. Super conservative guys, you know. Um, And so I think that type of thing extends to it doesn't matter what weapon you're hunting with. I don't care if you're shooting a sniper rifle and you're shooting at something at a thousand yards or if you're shooting, um, you know, the most crude self bow out there, you know, maybe you're, maybe your comfort range is five yards on the range and you're not going to shoot anything unless it's a perfect broadside stationary head behind a bush, you know, three yard shot. Right. Um, and so I, I really don't think it has anything to do with the weapon. I think it has everything to do with your um, acceptance of, you know, acceptance or not acceptance of, of, of wounding an animal. I think that's exactly the point I tried to make, and, and I agree 100%. Yeah. But I think also w- when your range is longer, um, even with a compound, if you're like, okay, uh, I noticed when I first shot a compound, it was like 40 yards, and then now it's 80. I got an 80 yard pin, mm-hmm. I got a 100 yard pin. And when you're willing to to go out further, you got more air. And so I don't th- I mean, I don't think so, though. No, I mean, um, you know, the, the, the guys I know guys that sh- can shoot a compound and hit a baseball at 80 yards every single time. Right. Now, there's other factors that come into play. Yeah. I mean, animals move. You got wind right. and, and, but that th- and this and that can happen at 10 yards, too, with your but but it bow. gets back to. Yeah, exactly. It can happen with ethics. Bow. But it gets back to your own personal acceptance. I mean, the guys that can do that, I mean, they're not shooting at elk. The, the, the guys that are conservative and they, they really, you know, when they wound an animal, it gets away from them. You know, if it really impacts them and they, they really hate that, they're not going to be taking that shot right. in the woods, you know. But then you take that other guy who has no empathy and just doesn't, it doesn't affect him. You know, he can wound an animal and say, ah, oh, well, just brush it off and go to the next one. You know, that's the guy that's going to be taking those, you know, he's going to be pushing his own abilities, you know. Well, um, I'd like to uh, kind of jump uh, topic. I'm kind of staying within the same topic. Um, I'd like to talk about technology. Um, it's ever-changing. Uh, we just uh, adopted lighted knocks in Oregon. Uh, we fought to, to keep uh, electronics off the bows for a long time, and uh, they found their way in. Um, these ozonic machines, um, when I started to, um, research whitetail hunting and, uh, ambush hunting, I learned about these, uh, ozonic machines. Um, it's this big battery operated device. looks like a VCR they're carrying into the woods. Some, some guys are carrying two and three of these machines. They're hooking it's them cover up. Scent. It's killing their scent. And, and the I've actually... Yes, and huh. I've, I've actually... I didn't know that was a product. <laughs> it yeah, is. it is. And there's actually... Uh, I've actually talked to uh, folks in Oregon that are using them, and 
Um, they talk about uh, being in ground blinds and having these in there, and the deer and elk will walk around the blind and stand in front of the blind. And it's like, wow, there went fair chase right out the door in my book. Like, uh, I mean, the, you're, you, they don't even, you're taking away their, their one hard ability to, to uh, e- escape. Yeah, that, that sense they rely on so much. And I think Clay said it really well in uh, maybe it was Untamed or, or another video, but basically saying, you know, that's what hunting's always been about is kind of solving these yeah, problems. Yeah, what did you, what was the line you said uh, in there? About being, about, about people being problem solvers. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's just. careful, we might just solve it. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. That's kind of where we're at. It, we're like knocking on that door. Well, I, you know, um, I was talking to James, uh, I guess, yesterday about fair chase and, um, you know, I think the definition, like the accepted Boone and Crockett definition of fair chase made sense a hundred years ago, you know, when it was, um, when it was come up with, but nowadays, you know, we, I, I think we need to amend that to say not only, you know, does the animal have a, 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 a fair chance of escape, but the animal ought to have a fair chance to use their own natural defenses. And today we are, we are completely capable of completely circumventing all of their natural defenses whether it's you know taking away their sense of smell with the with the ozonics or shooting them from 2,000 yards away you know that the ability to shoot an animal from that far away is that's a tremendous skill I mean it, it is is they're they're great shots it's but great marksmanship it's skill. great marksmanship and that's to do par- with hunting though. yeah it's a part of hunting but they take all you know they take hunting and reduce it to shooting. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you like I said, you completely circumvent an animal's ability to use any of their natural defenses uh, when you do that stuff. And I'm not going to sit up on my high horse and act like, uh, uh, you know, I'm not human. There's some more technology things that I've got here in my notes I want to talk about and I have personal experience with. One um, is an electric game call. Uh, they're legal in most states. Uh, I purchased one years ago, uh, and I bought it for uh, bear hunting. Um, I've called in several bears with a mouth read, and uh, an elk mouth read, and I thought, well, yeah, well, if I could bring them into this call versus into me, that would be trick. That would be neat. So I, I got the call. I n- I'd only used it once or twice. Uh, so this year I went and set up a stand in an area where, b- where bears were peeling cedar, so I knew there should be some bears in the area, and I, I set this call up, and I sat there for about three or four hours, having it uh, adjusting the volume and and trying to uh, uh, lure a predator. And I thought, oh yeah, maybe a mountain lion or a coyote or some 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 critter is going to come into this. And that day, uh, nothing came into this call, but it it was um, sitting in the stand gives you a time to reflect. And as I sat and listened to this thing. Uh, I became more and more disgusted in myself. I, I, I didn't like uh, for my own, and I'm not judging anyone else. It's just for my own personal, I felt like bringing this battery-operated device into the woods and having this remote control and and sitting there and playing with this and trying to dupe and trick a, uh, a, a wild animal uh, to come in so I can shoot him with this device it, it 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 didn't sit well with me, and I'm actually glad nothing came in. Uh, I'm gonna uh, part ways with this device. It it just it wasn't for me. 
I, I feel a lot better about putting the mouth read in my mouth and putting my own emotions into the call. And when the animal comes in, he, he you know, uh, is coming into something that I, uh, that I am doing, that I'm a part of. And it's kind of going back to that traditional bow hunting, um, becoming the shooting system, beca- you know, being part of that process. I, I'm also, uh, I own, uh, three trail cameras and I've gotten, um, a lot of enjoyment, uh, out of, using them. I have a bunch of friends that use the trail cameras, but at the same time, I have this piece of me that feels like I'm violating, uh, their space. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking advantage of them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's kind of where I, I feel uh, or how I feel about trail cameras too i mean i love seeing the pictures i don't own one yet but i just feel like it's like and it's just i i've got one in the woods right now as we speak so like i say i am not perfect and and i am i am on that um teetering back and forth you're, you're thinking about it though i think a lot of people don't think about it um you know i you were talking about you know bow hunters and stuff using the ozonics um and it's like what i what I don't understand about it is you limit yourself and you go to this thing that's supposed to be harder and then you spend all of this effort and all this money trying to like uh, up your odds uh, and take, uh, how do I explain it? Um, you limit yourself, but then you buy your way out of your limitation. Yeah. If that's yeah, right. You yeah. spend all this money, you know, buying these things that help you to m- become more and more effective it's like why are you doing why are you doing this in the first place? If you want to be that effective, then just go, you know, He's, buy a rifle. Buy a rifle. I, I agree hundred percent with that statement. Well, we see some of that in our traditional only hunts in Oregon is um Well they're not necessarily trying to limit themselves. Yeah. They just want that opportunity yeah. that and a I, traditional only hunt. I, I actually know traditional bow hunters bring in the most high tech version of traditional archery yeah. possible. Well, I know I know traditional bow hunters, uh, and I will not say names. These are even friends of mine that own uh and the guys that i are friends and i respect but you know they they own 40 trail cameras or i know guys that have ozonic machines Mm -hmm. and they're using it for traditional bow hunting and i'm like it baffles me and to each his own but with going back to the trail camera uh, i also last year i found it as a hunter trap is the way I, i i describe it um so all of a sudden i've got this inventory on on these bucks um, that I didn't have before. And with that inventory, um, it was like, well, should I sit here or should I sit there? And should it, I pass it, up this forky? Yeah. Though, there's that big four point out right. there. And, and should I, uh, that's why I don't want to even know. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't think that, uh, especially with black tail deer, you really can't pattern him down to the point where, like he's going to show up at this time. It's not really like that though. It's getting there because there's trail cameras now that alert your phone oh, yeah. and it's right away. The moment that critter steps up and I've actually heard stories of guys sitting in the stand, white tail guys back in, in the Midwest. No one I know personally, and they get alerted that the uh, uh, big boy on hit list just walked under stand number seven, and they're sta- they're sitting in stand number three, and they need to slip out and go over there. And I, I this guy killed a buck on the ground because he knew he was standing in front of the camera. Yeah. And uh, you know we, we can sit here wow. we can sit here and hash this stuff out amongst ourselves and talk about you know how we feel about what these other guys are doing. 
and sure. and you're always going to get flack for that. Yeah, absolutely. But but what, I think what a lot of guys don't understand, and and this isn't as applicable in the East where you have nothing but whitetails. But when you're talking about elk and mule deer and things like that, I mean. Per, on a on a personal level, I don't care what somebody else does. Yeah. You know, I if somebody wants to shoot a deer from a thousand yards away, if that floats your boat, whatever, go for it. I don't care. But there's there comes a time when what they like to do starts to impact me. Exactly, and, and that's when, where I wanted to take this. When that happens, then I have a stake in. I have an interest in it. That's what that's where I wanted to take this. I I agree a hundred percent. It's, you know, my decision to, uh, you know, uh, marry my wife and, and spend my whole life with her. That's my decision. You know, doesn't to impact e- me at all. Doesn't impact you at all. Um, and, and I Maybe think I wanted to marry her. <laughs> sorry, buddy. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, so, so, um, I think where a lot of these guys from the Midwest though, because whitetail's the, the number one game species in North America, yeah. right? And you've got these states where they are the the herd size is so huge, uh, the insurance companies want them gone. Uh, the, they the they've uh, infringed on 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 people and and they've they're creating a problem. And so you can shoot See, two a why, day. Why isn't Flo out there on TV with a rifle shooting deer? Right. Or with the comp? Like I don't understand why they haven't gone that far to like promote deer hunting if that's their uh, it, it it is if you look into it i mean i know flow has a commercial yet uh, uh but uh for geico <laughs> um but i'm telling you uh uh that's how this stuff becomes uh legal that's how uh um boone and crockett and uh the pope and young club adopt this stuff because it's not like out west where we're trying to manage these animals a to, limited number of tags that we're dealing with. Yeah, we're trying to get the populations up and still create opportunity. Um, where there, uh, give them all the technology, whatever it's going to take to get the numbers down. Get quality and, and, up. And, and so, um, but across the board, it ends up affecting, it affects us. Yeah. And, and you see states shortening their seasons, mm-hmm. moving their seasons to, uh, away from um, different times of the year. And because of the harvest rate has gone up, you talked about in your speech last night uh, at the banquet or uh, at the um, dinner last night of the seven percent bow hunting success rate in Idaho, I believe, and how it, it has risen with uh, modern technology, and that's going to lead to risen to the point of being same success rate as rifle season. Is that yeah, is yeah? So so rifle season, and this is in the the elk management plan uh, for Idaho. Uh, anybody can look that up online and, and find this graph, but um, you know we, we've been we have this data back I think to the seventies maybe seventies or eighties, um, but rifle season's always been you know around that twenty twenty two percent, and archery you know back when we first started collecting data archery and muzzleloading was down around you know seven eight percent or something like that, and you know, through time, that success rate has risen um, to the point now where there's there's no difference between uh, rifles, muzzleloaders, and archery equipment. And you know, y- y- you might ask why? What 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 difference does that make? We're still killing elk. There's still lots of elk. You know, but these seasons uh, were implemented at a time of year. When we'll take elk for instance. These 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 the reason that we're able to hunt elk in September during the rut is because that these during the most vulnerable time Mm -hmm. of year is that 
these seasons were developed at a time when we you could you could offer that type of um, that type of opportunity, very liberal opportunities, long seasons, um, and at a time when the elk are the most vulnerable because it was a a very low impact type of thing. Yeah, we had a low impact on the herd, choosing exactly. to limit ourselves yeah. via the and, equipment. And so you get you know you get into a situation where you know if a game department has to um, reduce harvest on uh, the overall population or a certain segment of the population, mature bulls, for instance, um, you know, you, you're going to be looking at, at reduced opportunity, whether that's moving to controlled hunts or uh, shortening a season or um, any number of ways that. Oh yeah. That's been the experience here in Oregon with, you know, a lot less cow tags, a lot more of these units are now draw <laughs> units. And there's, I, I, I've talked to some biologists in, uh, it's not out of the question for our season to be cut in half, just like Washington mm-hmm. had a four-week season and now they have a two-week season, uh, um, which happened a while ago. But it, it's not out of the question for this to happen. And, you know, I I don't want us to come off like we're on our high horse and we're some elitists. This no, is you this got you got to look at the facts. I mean, you got to look at the trend over time. It, like I said before, I don't care. I, I truly, honestly do not care what somebody else does but but when you start when you get these types of advances in technology that uh, result in higher success rates that's just not meeting the original intent of the season and something archery season something has to give and that is what scares me because when that happens it's not only going to affect those guys it's going to affect everybody it's going to affect my kids yes in, in the future and that that is what i'm concerned about right and 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 unfortunately we make up such a small piece of the pie that we we will be dragged along with them. I don't think uh, you know we we could hope in a perfect world that that uh, the way the muzzleloader has been able to spawn away from the rifle and have their own season. I don't I don't see us getting a, a traditional only bow season. It yeah, sounds why, great. Why is I mean uh, it seems like I mean and look at fly fishing. You know look at all the opportunities you have if you're you're willing to limit yourself uh, in fishing by by you know. Yeah, you get your own segments of streams. You yeah, get lots, own, yeah. lots of special opportunities for fly fishing. Why don't we get that in traditional archery? There is we we've already got recognition that it is different equipment. We have a couple of traditional only hunts in two. Oregon. We have two, right? Two. And I think that's pretty special. I don't think that exists anywhere else. No, but even those two hunts. I mean, if you compare that to the muzzle loading, the muzzle loader opportunities or the right. fly fishing opportunities, it's oh. pretty sparse. Right, and and I think. Uh, I do want to stay together. I think together. we need more doctors and lawyers shooting traditional. Right. Because that's what s- you have with the fly fishing camp right. and the muzzleloader camp. And I'd like to I mean, I think as a hunter, we need we need to stick together as a whole as a hunter. But there's no reason to, to say we are not sticking together by by wanting our own uh, separate season. What we're doing is different. Um our, our range is, is, is in half, if not uh, two-thirds. Um the skill set that it takes, I mean, it's 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 apples to oranges at this it, point. It, our range is half, and that doesn't mean it's twice as hard. It, it, it's more like four or eight, ten times as yeah. hard. Because now you're within that sensory envelope of the animal, not not where they feel comfortable the, standing broadside and looking back at whatever I've that had was compound guys on. tell me they way prefer a 40-yard shot over a 10-yard shot because the animal is relaxed and doesn't know they're yeah. there. Yeah, because they feel like they're at that safe distance. Right. Yeah, so I think it just gets exponentially more difficult the closer you get. Once you pass about that thirty-yard, forty-yard mark and start moving in, I mean the the the, the difficulty of um, staying there without being detected just 
um, climbs exponentially. And I believe the there's getting winded. I believe whatever. there's studies on this, and I don't know how hoopla it is, but uh, I I feel like even if you got the wind right, they can feel your nervous energy. I mean, I, I could be wrong. They got suits out there, guys are wearing that are supposed to block that nervous energy. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, or I, it's just they your just nerves. hear your heart. I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> I got to get one of those and strap an Ozonics on me so I can kill something with myself, Bo. And they, they've got an Ozonics <laughs> that just came out. I seen this uh, on the internet before. This was uh, something you mounted to your tree or in your. St- they have a backpack now for oh, the yeah. spot and stock hunter to uh, kill his scent as he's moving in. I mean, here, I'm just gonna throw a little tip out there. Something I do to cover my scent. I'm I'm kind of stinky guy, and I I'll brush up on pines and do as much as I can to crush needles on on myself while I'm um, getting close through some studies with, with uh, bird dogs and in, 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 uh, upland birds. I don't know how the study was conducted, but basically the, the observation was that um, breath from whatever animal is, is the largest you know, producer of scent out there that, that uh, sure. noses pick up. So I'm, I'm constantly just chewing whatever soft green tips of, of pine um, hmm. fur out there, just trying to clean up that breath with that. Those little I mean, the way I understand it, uh, you know, I smell, mom's making beef stew. I smell beef stew. Uh, an elk and deer smell carrots. They smell onions. They, 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 their sensories are so intense that they can pick it all apart. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think it matters what you do. Um, unless you can get into a bubble or you can have a battery operated machine that actually turns the molecule and kills the scent. Or understand wind movements, mm. and that's, you know, well, where, where that, kind of putting your time in and earning oh, earning it. Oh, wait a minute. W- woodsmanship? <laughs> are, 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 is that part of hunting? But, but I getting, forgot. Getting to, you know, Clay's point, it doesn't matter what another guy's doing, um, you know, in terms of their choice of weapon or, or how far they're willing to take a shot. But, but until it starts impacting us directly and, and – we're speaking about that in terms of tag numbers and and, um, and and season lengths, but one of the ways I feel like elk hunting has been affected in, in my life just from when I started when I was younger and and then I kind of came into elk hunting before the compound was a real popular thing and now and it was real stark contrast for me because I was out of state for seven or eight years and then came back in 2010 it was the first fall I was back hunting. And so all of a sudden there was a lot more folks in the woods during mm-hmm. archery season. And it's it's hard to hunt elk when they're pressured, oh, when yeah. they're being called at all the time. Yeah. And so there's just a lot more hunters out in the woods uh, calling it elk, chasing elk around. And it it's uh, kind of, it, it's harder to get away from that now. And that's kind of what burns me a little bit is it's, Bow hunting is now available to anybody. Anybody who's got a little cash to buy their way in and, and get set up at a pro shop. Whereas before, you had to, you know, put in some time and and get uh, get to know. The, I, I hear a lot of guys there. that are drawn to our, our equipment, and they're like, "Once I find the time, I'm really busy in my life right now, and I, I'm shooting the compound because I'm too busy and I can't practice enough." And it's like. I'm sorry, guys. That's a cop out. Uh, you can shoot a couple hours every night. When the sun drops, it's an instant alarm for me to drop what I'm doing and go out. And sometimes I step out and I shoot one arrow, yeah. and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm good." Uh, m- maybe four or five. Um, and then there's times when I get to to spend hours shooting, but it 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 just takes uh, well, a little did, bit of time out of your life. Not a lot. You know, there's so many people that spend. I mean. It, 
they go home and watch TV for two hours. Right. <laughs> yeah, but they don't have time to <laughs> step out in the up. yard. Why well, live in town? Uh, I've got friends uh, set them up where they can shoot in their living room at four feet. Yeah. It, it's form. It's it's building that shot sequence. You don't have to go out and shoot 20 yards all the time. So um, it, it's a cop-out. I, I got guys in the city that are great shots, and they're doing most of their shooting from five feet inside their apartment. I, I've seen it firsthand. It's mm-hmm. it's it's doable. Um, it's just a matter of uh, dedicating yourself to to it. And, um, and that's that. You know, that's what it is for me. Is it's just now now our tr- these amazing opportunities to hunt elk during the rut are now available to just about anybody. But you know what you I know, what I love was, about bow hunting is I love the research. Uh, I love planning my adventure. I'm, I'm an adventure seeker for sure. So how am I going to go around these guys? How am I going to get away from them? Yeah. And it's not always further and deeper. Sometimes it's, uh, did they think of this tactic or did they think about, are they going to, you know, this little pocket? Um, I enjoy uh, trying to uh, come up with those those areas where the animals uh, are going to feel safe because that's, you know, that's where the animals are going to be. So yeah. I think that's a big part of uh, a bow hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Can, um, can we take a break before we? Yeah, definitely. I have got to. Yep. <laughs> okay, we're we're back after a little break. So, uh, you guys got any? Um, do you guys want to conclude anything um, on the technology uh, before I move on? Oh, I don't know. I'll probably have some thoughts after I listen to it again. I'm sure I always skip stuff that's that people would want to know. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'll just the laser dot. I think that's where I'm going to lose my shit when like that (laughs) hits hits the market and is legal in bow hunting. Well, is is when you got a a aiming system coming out the end of your arrow tip. Oh, that's there. But I mean, you know, it won't be long before that's legal. To yeah. Right. And 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 I know that there's there's a new technology. It's. these things usually start off real expensive, right? And then they find their way into uh, yeah. into the hands uh, at, a, at a lower rate for everyone to afford them. Uh, Loophold has uh, now got a FLIR. I think that's the correct uh, terminology. It's this heat sinking or heat. That you, you look oh, through. no. Yeah, yeah, that's out in the magazines everywhere. I'd heard about this years ago. Some, uh, some local fishermen, elk hunters, uh, commercial fishermen, elk hunters had this unit. Where they were looking into uh, the wo- they could look into the woods night or day, and they could actually make out the herd of elk with a heat map. Right, like Predator, like the movie Predator. Right, <laughs> oh, shit. right. And this, so now uh, it's it's affordable. Uh, Loophole's got this uh, mono monocular uh, unit, and guys I've, are. Um, I've seen those things. I, 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 there was a, a guy that had one at a, a wildlife society conference a little while back, and it's. It's really cool because you, you can look through it and you can see the you can see the the heat re, the residual heat from people's tracks as they're walking oh, around. Wow. Well, yeah, we so. use that technology in counting bats coming out of caves in uh, Big Bend National Park. You could and you could tell the difference between uh, Townsend's bigeared bat and a Mexican longnose bat because the the Townsend's bat would have these big, tall, slightly cooler ears. And you could actually see that in the, the images. So you were doing some wildlife work also? Or? Yeah, yeah. That's what my I, – I went – apparently if you want to be a, a self-boyer, you have to get a master's degree in biology. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I think the – I guess my concluding thought uh, would on the technology part of it would be that, you know, we're not, we're not bashing – at least I don't think we are. We're not bashing people for what they're doing 
but I think we all need to be cognizant of the fact that the, all, all of these t- pieces of technology are designed to do one thing, and that's increase our efficiency. And when we increase our efficiency too much, it will, it will result in reduced opportunity, and that affects everybody. I think that is the bottom line when it comes to technology. Yeah. I think that's in a nutshell. Um, y- you definitely uh, hit, hit the nail on the head with that. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, I don't want to um, judge anyone. I have good friends that uh, dabble in all different forms of technology, and y- we're, we're just – what did you say in the um, a film again? Uh, if we uh, – About the problem solving? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what they're doing is they're – the, the game animals are presenting problems, and we are using technology to solve those problems. And I think a big part of why I hunt the way I hunt is because I want to rely on myself to solve those problems. Right. My, my goal is to solve the problem that they present, but I want to use my own experience, my own knowledge, um, and a little bit of luck every now and then to, to and solve I, them. And I know when guys <laughs> spend money on these things, they 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 get defensive when you, you when 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 we're talking about them. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm once again, I'm guilty. Um, I have trail cameras and I'm really, uh, we're, we're all guilty. I mean, bow and arrow is about the oldest piece of technology yeah. there is. I mean, yeah. it's technology yeah. and, and you know, it, it was a technology that revolutionized humanity. Right. Uh, I, I own a GPS. I have a cell phone. I have a camera. I drive yeah, a car. We all use technology. I mean, um, the the sleeping bag that I have is super ultra light. You know, it's down yeah. with some. I don't know. It's like still nylon or something. So just, I mean, everything that we use in the woods from um, you know, from the sleeping bags to the boots that we wear on the ground are are, are enabling us to be out there yep. and be more effective. Uh, you know, but I think what people aren't doing, or or what I think most people aren't doing, is really. Like you were talking about sitting in a tree stand, thinking, like analyzing, asking the question, like why being introspective, I guess. Why am I doing things this way? You know, why, what do I expect to get out of this relationship with this animal? Um, and, and I think if, if more of us would do that, more people would be drawn to a more simplistic way of hunting instead of, you know, and you, you, you obviously are going to have guys that are in it like solely for the trophy. But I really do, I think that those guys are rare, you know. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, though, I think that that's becoming more prolific due to TV and you know, social media. media. Everybody wants that. Uh, and and Post I... Post that, that picture, you know. I, fa- I, fall, I fall into that uh, that trap also, you know. Um, big mature animals and big horns, are they're cool. Um, they're not high on my list. It's not... Um, and I'm not going to say that, oh, I'm only a meat hunter. The meat is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody has their uh, their own reasons. Um, and I said it once before, uh, I seek adventure. Uh, I seek feeling. And it's, and I guess I look at um, each piece of technology, and uh, I guess how I'm going to navigate myself through this is how does it make me feel? Yeah. And, and that's what, um, what I – but what I want to get out of it is how does it make me feel and how do I want to move on from there? And so I think we'll, we'll leave it at that. And, um, I'd also, uh, I'd like to talk about, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, you're involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, I, uh, I'm not a member. I'm sorry. You gotta change that. You gotta, yeah. Right. So. You gotta be um, a member. BHA. Right. So, um, I'm not a member because. 
I I've looked at both sides and I I haven't formed an opinion. My opinion is waving very 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 strong towards becoming a member. I'm I'm there I'm there. Like I looked at both uh, sides of what? Uh, uh, yeah, there's another side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there there's there's there there are people who have uh hunter and fishermen who seem to believe that it's this uh there's a hidden agenda. Yeah. And um it's and common to find folks that aren't familiar with the organization that think that they're anti-management, anti-logging, um, that type of thing. And I, I have, uh, I've been a member of BHA for, uh, since 2009, I think. And so I've been with them for, for a pretty good while. And, and I want to cut you off. I want to just further explain okay. m- my side, uh, or no, it's not even a side, yeah. my feeling yeah. towards it. Um, it's it to me now seems like an absolutely legit organization getting to talk to someone like you in person we've got to spend some time together over the last few days getting to know each other shooting arrows sharing meals and um uh so the uh my uh you're very authentic and so now i can take you know your side of it and 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 really grasp it um but i, I have other uh uh influences in my life who seem to feel that um that there is that there was this hidden agenda and i'm the kind of guy that's uh all in like when i jump in i am heads first uh here you know and i'm there mm-hmm. and there's no wishing and washing but i w- i'm 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 careful i i want to make sure before uh i get in and start preaching that something that uh there's not something hiding in the shadows um you know i uh, and so I've been cautious. Um, now I have a, a buddy back home, Joe Metzler, um, and he uh, was uh, working in junction with backcountry hunters and anglers, working towards saving something that's uh, super important and very precious to me. It's uh, it's the land I cut my teeth on, uh, the Elliott State Forest. It's ninety thousand acres that sits uh, on the coast range of Oregon. Um, it's phenomenal habitat for the Roosevelt elk. Black-tailed deer, black bears, uh, spotted owls, lions, um, an array, a plethora of of wildlife. And uh, I've taken my first buck there. I've taken my first bull there. Mom's gotten her first critters there. Uh, I camped there. It's very special. And when I found out we were going to lose this, the state was going to part this off for pennies on the dollar, it hit home. It was like, now it's in my backyard. It's taking away from me. And uh, this backcountries and hunters and anglers, uh, they're supposed to uh, help represent this. And so I sat back and I was like, are they going to get involved? Are someone from them going to get involved? And sure enough, they did. And uh, them, in conjunction with, uh, they were able to uh, work with just people from all different walks of life, uh, from some of the people who, uh, you know, I may not agree with their views to, uh, uh, everybody got together and I'm happy to say that we're keeping the Elliott state forest. And I don't think usually these things turn out that way. Usually we lose them and we learn from those mistakes and we, we move on. So that, that is, that's super good. Like it's super special to me that we're going to keep this uh, piece of land and hopefully my grandkids. And is that where it's at now? 
Yeah, it was just announced recently that uh, we got in a unanimous vote from the, uh, with the land board with the land board to keep it, and they said that the only reason why we are keeping it is because these organizations and these people, uh, uh, guys like me who took the time to email and call, uh, organiz- you know, t- we put up enough fuss that we're going to keep it, and now the timber company that was uh, looking at purchasing it for pennies on the dollar is suing the state uh, for not selling it to them. It, it's unbelievable, but we are keeping it. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I felt that, you know, I'd heard that, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're saying that they're doing this, but they're, uh, they're taking money and they're representing uh, folks that are uh, not pro-hunting and not pro-fishing. And um, that happens every day. It seems ridiculous, but it happens with this gray money. Um, and it sounds like um, conspiracy theory sometimes uh, where, like, when the state's losing the land, someone's funding some of these uh, um, uh, groups, not, not backcountry hunters and anglers, but someone's funding some of these uh, tree-hugging groups uh, to shut this down so that uh, the, these private companies can come in and buy the I've often these wondered resources. how much, you know, if there's any uh, connection there, money flow between some of the private uh, industries that, that want their hands on this land and these um, very litigious groups that uh, well, if you sue look, the state out of owning the land. Yeah, well, if you, it, it's been proven, and if you look, uh, actually n- now that I think that uh, backcountries and hunters and anglers have started to put some of that out. Like, once the state gets their hands on the land, you can just look at your watch. It's just a matter of time for uh, them to come up with uh, an excuse to pass it on down to someone that wants to rape the resources. Um, So uh, speak to some of that. Uh, Tell us more about backcountry's hunters and anglers. Um, I'd love to hear it from you. All right. So I, I guess I would, uh, and I, I've heard the same type of thing, I mean, and the, the rumors are, are out there, but I would invite anybody who doubts what backcountry hunters and anglers is about to look at their record. Look at the th- projects that they've been involved with. Look at what they support um, and what they oppose, and then draw your opinion based on that, not what somebody says you know, about them. Facts. Uh, facts. And there's been some um, there's been some propaganda basically put out against backcountry hunters and anglers that basically says that thing you just said. I know where all that stuff's coming from. Um, but I can tell you firsthand, I mean, hunting, like I said in my talk last night, hunting is uh, a huge influence in my life. It is a huge part of my life. I could there's no way I could describe who I am without talking at length about hunting. And if you go to a backcountry hunters and anglers rendezvous or a gathering, you will be surrounded by some of the most hardcore backcountry hunters that are on the face of the earth. I mean, these are people who live and breathe hunting. They, they are not a front for some alternative green agenda that, you know, is anti-management, anti-everything, and, uh, you know, uh, anti-hunting. Um just one example of a project that, that BHA, talking about the, the, the management and the, the logging aspect of it, one project that they've been involved with in quite some, or for quite some time is uh, in the Clearwater Basin of Idaho, 
where it's a collaborative group. Uh, you have uh, a variety of interests at the table. You have timber industry. Uh, you have ATV groups. You have the Wilderness Society, Idaho Conservation League, um, uh, and backcountry hunters and anglers, and a whole bunch of other folks. And they're working together to um, do things like uh, uh, design timber har- uh, timber projects and get timber off the ground uh, into the mills, uh, put uh, folks in the local communities to work. Uh, um, they had an ATV trail uh, that was linked, like lo- I think it's like the longest ATV trail in the West or something like that. It's just a huge, massive project. Uh, and then also uh, um, getting working towards getting um, uh, wilderness designated. And so you have all these uh, opposing interests that are working together in this collaborative group. And you've got backcountry hunters and anglers sitting right there at the table um, helping to get timber uh, projects done. And so when somebody comes to me and says that, that BHA is anti-something, I, it's it doesn't carry a whole lot of whole lot of weight for me. Now I know I know where your influence is coming from and I know where their influence has come from and, and we can talk about that a, a sure, little later. <laughs> sure. And 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 I and I'll be honest with you, um the I started off as I, I I was skeptical and I really am not anymore because of my experience with the Elliott State Forest, but I was kinda of playing devil's advocate because uh, it was just recently where I feel I've seen the light and, and these, you know, these people you're talking about, um, these hardcore, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, these are the people I want to surround myself. These are the people I want to support. So, I mean, it's just a matter of me, uh, making it happen, you know? So, uh, I really don't need convincing, I guess, but it, it was, uh, I was kind of playing devil's advocate because I was on the fence, uh, for some time and it seemed great. And then you you look at um, them aligning themselves, but I with other organizations that are you know Greenpeace or this, and it seemed skeptical. But I watched that it, these are um, necessary uh, moves to make. Well, yeah, I mean, if you know, you if if we lose the land, we don't have we're not having this conversation. We don't have right. anything to talk about. You know, the the guy that has the timber in, the the timber interest, or the guy that has the the he wants to ride his motorcycle around. None of us have any interest anymore if we don't have that land anymore, right? And so you've got to do whatever whatever is necessary to keep that land in the hands that it is right now. Is that's what we need to do because if it's gone, then we're not talking about it. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean that we we lose our public land and it's not even America anymore. I mean no, that's no. that's that's uh, yeah, it's part of our heritage. I mean that's mm-hmm. one of the things the the big thing that sets us apart. Uh, and and I'm I'm countries. seeing everything has changed where I live. Uh, and uh, as far as timber harvest, uh, I come from a logging community. I come from a, a community that was built on industry. It was built on logging, um, and so. You know that is that is in my uh, background, um, and and I think that there's a balance that needs to be, you you know there, and and I understand that where I live there's tree farms, and these are privately owned tree farms, and they're growing dug fir trees to uh, to harvest them just like uh, we grow corn in the Midwest, but I don't feel that uh, we need to do that uh, to sell those uh, all our our public land. We have we have enough of that. Um, we need to keep our pieces 
uh, so we can recreate, so we can camp, so we can hike, so we can bird watch, so we can hunt, so we can fish. Uh, and I, I'm not going to pay these people their $400 a month or $400 a year or uh, pitching on these leases. And all of a sudden, all, even the timber companies used to allow walk-ins and access, and now it's all pay-to-play, pay-to-play. And uh, it's, it, I won't do it. I, I don't care. Um, the Elliott State Forest, if it would have sold and it would have become a pay-to-play, uh, even though I know it, I cut my teeth there, I'm moving on. Um, being on public land is super important to me. Um, I'm planning on uh, getting to know more and more wilderness areas, places that I hope will never be taken away from us. And I think uh, being part of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a, a great place to start with that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I was more just kind of starting that out, kind of put my feelings out where how I'm, uh, how I'm evolving. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to, I believe, their next uh, gathering is in Idaho. It's going to be in Boise. And yeah. I'm, I plan to be there. Um, yeah, it's probably uh, April. Probably, I don't, they have the date set, but I, I can't remember what it is. Probably yeah. second week in April. So uh, I, I'll be there, mm-hmm. um, and I look forward to getting to know the the membership and the organization, and uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, there's a there's a they're a quality group of folks. I tell you, yeah, um, and there's there's you know all aspects of hunting. There's guys. There, there's lots of rifle hunters, lots of bow hunters, um, and everybody. But the the common the common thread uh, amongst all those guys is um, they really get after it. You know, I, I had a, I was at a, at the BHA rendezvous in uh, Spokane there a couple of years ago and there was a, an outdoor rider there that uh, came up to me and we got to talking and he said, you know, I've been to these types of functions all over the country. I've been to, you know, uh, Elk Foundation banquets, uh, Ducks Unlimited, you know, you name it, the conservation group. And I've been to their, uh, I've been to their banquets and I've never been to a place. I've never been to one of these things where, you know, 99 times or you could pick uh, uh out of 100 people um you know you had you're got 99 percent chance you pick one person out of that he, they're gonna really be somebody that gets after it in the backcountry whereas you know um and not to not to uh, uh, bang on these other organizations they're great organizations but a lot of times you know you got guys in there who you know they might go on their elk hunt for you know two days out of the year um or one week out of the year whereas for the vast majority of BHA guys or and gals, you know, they're spending a lot of time in the woods. They have a, a mantra, or a quote that uh, I uh, I like to use and steal all the time. Uh, um, I use the quads that God gave me. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I, I love that. Uh, Four wheelers are so prolific uh, uh, in some of the areas I hunt, and uh, I understand that they they have their place. But uh, I, I just love that statement, you know, because I've never owned a four wheeler and I don't plan to. Um, well, one of the things that you hear often is, you know, people want access to the elk. And I don't know, I'm not as familiar uh, with Roosevelt elk, but, uh, you know, the elk over in our part of the country anyway. Um, if you cut a road into somewhere, the elk are just moving farther away. And, and so, you, you, you you know, yeah, you can drive around. Every now and then you drive around and, and an elk will cross the road and, and you can shoot it out of your window if that's what you want to do. But that stuff doesn't happen very often. And, uh, I mean, there's been plenty of studies, you know, Starkey Experimental Station down in Oregon. Uh, there's been plenty of studies done there and other places that show that elk will just move away from open roads. Yeah, and, and Roosevelt Country is different because it is so steep and so thick. Mm-hmm. 
and the roads are generally in the tops only. Yeah. And so you, you sure you can drive around, but you can drop into these canyons and sometimes you only have to go in a mile, uh, but you would never be able to hear them bugle or see them because it's so thick yeah. that you have to go down there to, to be with them to and experience them. it. So it, it is a kind of a different uh, experience, but I have uh, spent some time hunting uh, in the more arid areas now in Eastern Oregon and that's that's the name of the game. Uh, get away from the get away from the roads for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in that argument, I mean, there's already so many places with oh, roads yeah. cut in, oh, yeah. and, and you know, there's. I don't. I don't know. I don't see much uh, anything solid to that argument. That what what need is more the ATV what, trails cut in? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, what is the future of backcountry's hunters and anglers? Would you say? I don't know. They've been growing uh, like mad, yeah, especially since all the rhetoric about public lands transfer. Yeah. I, don't, I haven't ke- been kept keeping up with their memberships, um, but Montana's kicking butt in uh, in recruitment. Idaho's really grown a lot um, in the last year or so. Uh, I think Colorado's leading uh, with the number of members, but um, yeah, I mean, they've been growing and, and hopefully they keep going that way. Yeah, it seems, uh, it seems to be a... a a really awesome organization, and I look forward to being part of it. Um, I'm, I guess I mean, in a, in a way, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm not, um, but it, it's just get that membership. It's just, it's just where I'm at, you know. Yeah, so uh, I need to get signed up, and and I, I need to get involved for sure. Um, There's only a couple organizations that I have active memberships with, and that's one of them that I just feel like they're doing. You know that it's it's money well spent. They're they're uh, you know using it wisely and, and making a difference, having an impact with their voice and uh yeah just it just for me it's 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 a good one it's an easy easy place to send my 25 dollar membership check off to each year sure it's a it's it seems to be a a perfect fit for uh for you know my moral compass and and how i feel about wild places and wild things um so what about uh speaking of organizations are you guys uh members to uh the professional bow hunter society and um what's been your experience there I'm. I am not. I. I. That's one I'm considering joining. Just because. Uh, yeah. Their. Their mission statement seems to be in line with. With. Uh, my moral compass. But. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm. I'm, I'm a member of uh, PBS. I went to their. Went to their banquet. Um. Last. Last year. Not just this last spring, but the. But the one before. And. Uh, the. If you're into to traditional bow hunting, I mean, it's not a traditional only organization, but the vast majority of members are are, are traditional shooters. Yeah. Um, but if you go there, I mean, you're you're talking face to face with legends. Right. I mean, the uh, Monty Browning, uh, just a unbelievable. Some of the stories that guy tells uh, is, is awesome. Uh, the w- Wenzel brothers are be be there. Uh, Don Tom, I mean, in Asbel, all of them, all as well, all of them I, are going to be there. I I went to the uh, gathering in Portland. Um, I, it must have been seven years ago, and I became a member then. And yeah, it, it was amazing the uh, the gentlemen and gals that I was able to rub shoulders with mm-hmm. and uh, to sit and conversate with, and then get to go home and and to read their their writings from magazines and books and. And to have them all uh, in one place, uh, I, I think it's a, the, one of the greatest benefits of that organization. Though, is as you know, we were talking about the community earlier, but I mean, those guys have you know cumulatively 
centuries of bow hunting experience in every corner of the world. And you could pick up the phone and call any one of them. Right. And they can help. They, I mean, they, they will go out of their way to help you in whatever it is that you're you're trying to accomplish as far as bow hunting goes. And their mission statement is knowledge through experience. Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? And, yeah. and I think it's just spot on. They, uh, they also, they do allow uh, um, modern archers compound archery. And, and like you said, it's a small small piece and I, I it was kind of I didn't understand it at first I was like well why um but I I, I totally get it now it's it's uh you know make it available for everyone welcome them in it's not and, so and much, educate them yeah it's not so much about you know technology uh, or well I guess it, 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 that's a piece of it uh, but it's not so much about the equipment that somebody shoots it's mainly about developing your woodsmanship and just becoming a better bow hunter right and I came into this from shooting a compound. I mean, I had a natural desire to get into traditional archery. I was mesmerized by it and the, and the people involved, but I was shooting a compound. So I started somewhere and these people brought me under their, you know, some of these uh, local friends and mentors brought me under their wing. So it's the same thing, but in an organization, an organization, you know, it's like, why would we want to shut them out? Let's let's uh, let's bring them in and 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 uh, educate them through experience. So yeah, I'm I'm excited uh, to go to their next gathering because um, it's uh, I, I so if anyone out there listening, these are two uh, organizations that seem to be very very important to uh, the future of traditional <laughs> archery. Oh, and and while we're talking about organizations, I just want to. Uh, make a plug for traditional archers of Oregon and all of these other state level uh, bow hunting um, organizations because they're they're actually engaging in the legislative process at that state level, uh, ensuring you know doing their best to to you know keep technology from from getting it, out of hand. And you're an active, you uh, yeah. No, uh, um, as of this time last year, uh, secretary of TAO. So so I'm trying to get more involved there on the board and and uh, um, you know be. Uh, volunteer and contributor in uh in those efforts and uh membership you know is is uh is what we're after kind of growing that membership because as you know you know if you took a a poll right now at this traditional archery shoot you know we're we're kind of uh uh, there's not a whole lot of folks in our age class right so we're trying to uh, get more membership of the the guys our age and, and get more and t- traditional archers of Oregon uh, uh, was des- definitely instrumental in my development and 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 furthering my knowledge and you know meeting people like you it was f- because of them uh, uh, that organization that brought uh, you know you into my life and so uh, I think you know I think everybody where should would we be without TAO right <laughs> right so I think that um, lovebirds <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I, I think that it's important that everybody gets involved with, uh, if you have a traditional uh, archer um, organization in your state, like uh, the event we're at right now is, uh, is a traditional... Washington, uh, traditional Bowhunters Washington. Something like that. It's yeah. something like Good that, enough. yeah. Yep. Yeah, and so... Uh, most of these western states have some, you know, uh, TAO is traditional archers of Oregon and, and Idaho traditional Bowhunters. If you do a little poking around online, you should be able to bring up um you know some some traditional archery organization for for uh, your state and so, so for the record uh when i get home on tuesday 
uh, I will be become a, a member of uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, it's something that I've been needing to do, but I, I really wanted to uh, uh, have a chance to talk to Clay a little bit about it. So you need to uh, talk about PBS. We need to tell everybody about the the bow that Norm's given away for oh, yeah. the membership drive. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, Norm Johnson, a uh, good friend of mine, uh, he's uh, uh, Blacktail Bows, and he's the new Make, president. A gorgeous, I mean, unbelievably gorgeous bow. Yeah, uh, his bows are uh, top shelf. Not only gorgeous, but um, they and they and they shoot awesome. But the the craftsmanship and the finish work is second to none. Um, uh, they are, yeah, they are amazing. And he is the new uh, president of uh, PBS. And uh, uh, Blacktail Bows has uh, donating a basically a thirteen hundred dollar uh, credit towards a custom made bow of your specs. Um, I think they're that they're putting it out on social media and they're showing a a bow, but it, it's it's whatever bow you want to get built. You can get a long bow, uh, a takedown, a one piece built to your specs. Uh, built. That's not just a down payment on one of Norm's bows. Anymore. No, that'll get you into <laughs> that'll, uh, get you a bow. that'll get you a bow. Um, I mean, his bows start there and they go up from there. But that yeah. you will walk uh, with that, you can get a bow, and they're giving away a bow. Uh, they're going to take, uh, memberships, uh, people who sign up for memberships, uh, between now and I don't know, next year, next so. year. Oh, it's the, I, I heard that it was the next year's banquet banquet. So, so like February, March. Yeah. So between now and next winter before the, the banquet that I, I don't know, is it in Indiana or somewhere up there, somewhere up there. Uh, if you, uh, sign up for PBS, your name will uh, get put in the hat. And um, there will be uh, a tell, chance. Tell them Clay Hayes sent you. Yeah, I think there's a friend <laughs> referral part of it too in there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you'll, there'll be a chance to uh, to uh, get a get your hands on a uh, black tail bow of your liking, and um, I imagine there'll be uh, more opportunities uh, such as that. And and I I went to the PBS banquet years ago, and there were so many boyers. Uh, who donated bows for the raffle? There was just tables full oh, yeah. of bows and arrows and broadheads and quivers and bags and uh, just everything you could think of traditional archery and hunts and hunts and hunts and and like you said, any of these people that you uh, have got to know through uh, traditional bow hunter magazine or through uh, their books or their YouTube videos, guys like Clay Hayes. They're approachable. I mean, you can go right up to them and introduce yourself, and uh, these guys uh, will will uh, give you their time. I mean, like uh, the two of you unselfishly have <laughs> selfishly <laughs> you selfish suckers uh, unselfishly have uh, uh, sat here during a bow shoot and sat in this hot trailer with me and and uh, talked traditional bow hunting. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, a great thing and something that uh, everyone should look into. And I I definitely I'm. I am embarrassed that I haven't uh, joined Backcountry Hunters and Anglers yet, but uh, everyone has their time, and my my time is now. Yeah, I gotta be. I gotta join uh, PBS. Do you guys know where the banquet is? Uh, it's it, they're every other they're every other year, and I believe it's in in Indianapolis, Indiana. Is that right? I don't know. I'm gonna be talking out of yeah, but I don't know where it's at. It's somewhere. It's it's somewhere back uh, back east. Okay. Um, and it would be nice if we get, uh, can eventually get another one out, out on the West side, but I think that makes it in the middle. So everybody can kind of make it. Um, I think they had it in Florida. 
that yeah the last one was in florida, florida yeah um and i i was un, i really wanted to go to that i didn't i wasn't able to make it um but it sounds like it was a, a good time mm-hmm. um an, another organization i don't know about uh, but uh it sounds like a good one i don't know if you guys have any um experience with comptons i'm a member of comptons i really haven't done much with the group i mean i i, I um i couldn't really speak okay um, in depth about them yeah they seem it seems like uh it seems i know like they do a lot more like uh, i think they have a program like a getting bows in schools and things like that okay. that's that's one of their big things and they have I, a they big just, yeah they, they, they uh you know I, I read over their mission statement and uh know some guys that are members of it and i just thought they were a good organization to, yeah, they, to help support so yeah they seem to be in, in in line with uh with my thoughts and feelings and so it's something i'm going to look into also uh to try to support you know uh, anything that uh, benefits my my way of life and and it makes this um, uh, available for you know generations to come for sure. So um, yeah, I would like to um, I'd like to talk you guys into one more uh, hunt story if possible. Uh, the podcast I really uh, you know I think guys really love to hear a hunting story, and it, it doesn't matter if it's about a squirrel. It, it doesn't <laughs> have to be about a kill. Um, it, it, so if, uh, we could start with you, Carson, um, and give yeah, us a, a, yeah. a bow hunting story. Um, you know, I'd love that. Um, this one, I, I don't know why I was thinking of this one earlier. I think, uh, Clay was telling a story about, uh, well, it's kind of when you look back, you're like, oh man, if I knew then what I know now, you know, I could have sealed the deal on that one. And, uh, so yeah, the, th- this is another one that got away, but, um. I had I shot a nice mule deer that uh, archery season, and I took that same bow out, a little Osage bow with uh, some recurve tips, and uh, and I wanted to I wanted to use an obsidian arrowhead. It wasn't my own napping work, but uh, I had this one uh, obsidian tipped arrowhead, and I had it in the quiver, and uh, it was I was over on the coast staying in a cabin, and I, I didn't really I wasn't planning on hunting that evening, but it's just like oh you know lights looking real good right now it's that last hour in the day and i stepped out outside and went about oh just 100 yards up the creek from the cabin and uh cow called a little bit and uh blew this blacktail buck out of some vine maple thicket and then uh thought i heard a elk bugle just the other side of the creek you know a couple hundred yards up pretty thick stuff and uh sure enough there it was again you know maybe turned his head and now was in my direction i could hear pretty clearly and uh i ran back to the cabin grabbed my bugle and tromped through the creek and climbed up the steep hillside to the other side where it was a big flat that had been just clear cut the year or two before. I got up there to the top and there's this big down cedar uh, with a few hemlocks growing up out of the side of it. And I settled in behind that and, and just ripped off a bugle. I mean, this is never how elk bugling has worked for me. <laughs> this is how I'd always like wanted it to or how I like picture it, you know, when it's uh, before season starts, like, oh, yeah, this is how Elk Bugling is going to go. But this is how it went, finally, um, the the right way where I just get up there and just rip off a bugle, and then, you know, he just screams right back at me, and here he is. I mean, I can hear him just crunching, coming in hard, hot. And if I had been more patient, I had a real nice setup the way that big cedar was angled where he was going to step out past that ruwa, and I was going to have a 12-yard shot, him quartering away. Wind was perfect. And he hung up for just a second at about 20 yards, and I'm peeking up over this big cedar log. And there's little huckleberries also growing off the top of this log between the, the hemlocks. And I had that uh, 
Obsidian tipped arrow knocked. So you're in the jungle. You're, you're, we're hunting Roosevelt's here. I'm on the edge of the jungle looking into this, like, desolate, clear-cut. You know, it's it's warehouser land, so it's been sprayed. So it's just all just a bunch of dry, cracking limbs out there. Right. And he's just coming in, and, you know, he's just tearing up. There's just sticks flying everywhere. And, he, you know, this is a big, big Roosevelt. Nice, tall rack. You know, six by six, just stout. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's a nice herd bull. And he was just coming in, you know, he, he was in the thick of it, you know, he, he was looking for this bull, he's ready to fight, and I was I was like, oh, shit, that, it all happened so quick. There he is, 20 yards broadside, just, just you know, I'm, I'm going to take this shot instead of being patient and getting the shot I'd originally anticipated, which would have been um, a pretty pretty high percentage shot, and I, I don't know, I had a spot picked on him, and I, I was pretty well composed, but at the last second, I kind of checked that brush in front of me, that huckleberry brush, to make sure I wasn't going to catch a twig, um, you know, make sure I had a clear window to shoot through, and in doing that, I, I don't know, I felt like I should have just refocused again on that spot before I let it fly, because it yeah, just sailed a little high. The arrow stopped and flipped out, the momentum of the arrow kind of flipped it out. He took off crunching away, and I'm like, God damn, you know, so I grab for my cow call and, meow, meow, meow. and toom, he turns his head and, but he's going to swing around and try and get downwind of me and come up so i had to do something and there's this like two massive cedar stumps um right out in the middle of this clear cut and i so i just like you know just what the heck he's behind him i just took off tromping through the open you know crunching brush and got up right behind him and sure enough you know I, i'm up on the back side of this stump and i can just see antler tips on the other side of the stump, just rocking around, and he's coming around the backside, and I'm going to lean around. I'm going to have, like, a three-yard shot. And uh, just as I'm, you know, getting in position to kind of lean around as he's coming around, I hear this boom. And sure, shit, there's a whole herd up on the hillside just watching the whole thing. Um, and, and so that cow barked, and he, you know, blew out of there. It's the one that got away. Well, it was just a, it was just a memorable hunt. It was yeah. just a nice big bull, and it all happened so fast. And it, 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 was, uh, it was one of those times where it was just like, you know, that – go out call once get an answer you know bugle and then sure enough get an answer he's on top of you it was just uh pretty memorable how yeah. it all it how doesn't it all went down it, it doesn't happen all the time no. uh, the roosevelt no. elk woods that no. way for sure no. um you, you got a hunting story for us i reckon i can tell you a hunting story um so this is the first bow hunting story i guess uh, that i really had so when i was a kid um we used to have, so my dad raised buffalo, raised bison, and we sold the meat. And for some, he, he would he would have people come and like want to trade him stuff for skulls or hides or whatever. And somehow we ended up with this old hickory board bow, self bow. And it wasn't, I look back on it now, and it wasn't very well made, but I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and I took, uh, it, you know, I was probably... I don't know, 11 or 12. I may have been older than that. But um, had this bow and, and had a string on it. probably drew 60 pounds. I mean, I could draw it about for about 16 inches. And I had an old, uh, um, some aluminum arrows that my brother had had for a compound that he had. And if you take the tips off those arrows, you can put a washer behind them and screw the tip back in and make like almost like a little small game head or something like that and i took that bow out and uh um would go squirrel hunt with it from time to time and i remember this one um we had lots of gray squirrels around the house squirrel hunting is huge in the south 
But uh, I remember the first squirrel I ever killed with that thing, and he was sitting on a branch um, probably no more than about 10 feet from me, and I drew that thing back and just whap, knocked him, I mean, knocked him off that branch clean. He sailed about two feet, hit the ground, and then started like kind of getting away a little bit and i had to go claw my way and this is in the south everything there's a thing called the green briars or they call them wait a minute vines because they have got these big uh cat hook things on them i mean just terrible thorns. wait a minute like you're hooked up wait a minute <laughs> over here bush and i so i was clawing my way through this thing and i had to had to chase the squirrel down through this uh through this bramble thicket and and smack him with a bow limb but uh, I remember that it was such a an awesome thing killing that squirrel with a with a uh, a wooden bow uh, that I remember to you know however many twenty something years later I remember it just like it was yesterday had a huge impact oh yeah yeah, yeah definitely that's awesome well hey I, I want to wrap this up a little bit talking about uh, you know a little bit more about what you know what you guys are doing um, Clay you've got a new book can you uh, Tell us about the new book. Yeah, so uh, I've got got one book out on, you can get it on my website or, or you can get it on Amazon. It's just a, a, a accumulation of a bunch of old articles that I've had uh, published in various magazines. And then I'm... What, working, and what is that book called? Uh, it's If you uh, Google traditional bow hunting or uh, look on Amazon, um, Google, uh, traditional bow hunting, you'll see it. Okay. I've got a Kindle version and a, and a paperback. But the one I'm working on now, hopefully... Uh, we'll have it done by the end of June is a bow building book. Okay. And so it covers, um, you know, all aspects of bow building. It covers one of the things that I get, uh, questions I get very often is, um, where can I get an Osage orange stave? And I get that question a lot. And what I usually tell folks is, well, you know, and a lot of times they're beginning bowyers and they're going to try this on their own. And so what I tell them is, you know, you're, you're, you're going to spend a hundred dollars minimum plus shipping, and you're probably going to end up spending, you know, $150 plus shipping. So you're going to be up around 200 bucks plus for a piece of wood. And, 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 you know, if, if this is your first bow, you know, and you're, and you're going it alone, um, you know, you're probably not going to end up with, with a, a great shooting, uh, bow. And so what I really encourage people to do is find something that grows locally right around their area and use that. I mean, when I started hunting or when I started making bows, I used common persimmon, which is like a weed in the, in, uh, in Northwest Florida. And I made probably a dozen bows out of that before I ever even saw a piece of Osage. And so one of the sections, one of the big major components of this book is talking about bow woods from around the country and um, where to find it, what the characteristics are of this, um, you know, whether it's a, a high-difficulty wood, like I would consider eastern red cedar to be pretty high-difficulty, or, or juniper or something like that, just because you, you need to send you back it. Um, you have to have a perfect tiller, things like that. And then you've got other species like hickory, which are, you know, very, very forgiving. Uh, Osage tends to be a forgiving wood as well, if you have access to it. But um, that's going to be a big portion of it um, that's going to cover all other aspects of the, of the boat building. So... That sounds great. What, and what's the title of that book? I don't know yet. Untitled. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, it's uh, it'll be um, if you get on it, it'll be on my website, and then it'll also be on Amazon. Um, but and if you, it's Twisted Stave Media. Yeah, TwistedStave.com. TwistedStave.com and uh, Twisted Stave. 
you've got a link to your YouTube channel. Yep. Yeah. If, uh, if, um, if you get on Google and Google Clay Hayes, you'll come up with my website. You'll come up with my YouTube channel. Um, and you might come up with a link to the Amazon book, but as far as, uh, finding the books, um, if you want to buy it from Amazon, then uh, you just get on there. And, and Clay's got a, a ton of YouTube videos out there on building bows to uh, backcountry navigation. And he, we talked about his film, Untamed. If you haven't seen it, uh, you've got to. He followed that film up with uh, Ascent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of a backcountry adventure type film. Yeah, did a, a, a late season float uh, float hunt in the Frank Church Wilderness uh, for mule deer, and ended up killing a, a little buck on that with a self bow. But it's just a it was just just an awesome adventure. Yeah, and that's the, awesome it, video. If you haven't seen any of Clay's videos, yeah, the, gotta that them. that that film's super good. Uh, he's got a uh, he's got a new elk hunting film up uh, where he's got some awesome elk action going on. Is there any new films? Uh, I, mean, I know there's got to be. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've got. Uh, so I got a buddy from Tennessee, Damon Bungard with Orion Coolers, is going to come out uh, in early June, and we're going to do a backcountry backpack air, uh, bear hunt, spot and stalk during the bear rut, and I'm hoping to get a film out of that. I think that's going to be. I'm, I'm excited about that. It's, I love bear hunting. I yeah, love it. Yeah, it's it's awesome country where we're going, kind of a little bit higher elevation. We're going to get up into the, some of those alpine meadows. Uh, hopefully, you know, there's a ton of huge snowpack in Idaho this year. And so, um, there's still going to be snow on the North slopes and we're hoping to catch those bears as they come out on that fresh grass, um, and make something happen. Well, that's awesome. Clay, um, if you guys haven't seen any of this, it's very inspiring and yeah, give Clay Hayes a look and Carson, you've got a echo archery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, uh, Part owner in Sherwood Shafts now, taking over my dad's role in Sherwood Shafts. And tell us about Sherwood Shafts. So, let's see. I don't want to go into to be too lengthy here, but uh, Sherwood Shafts got start uh, quite a while ago as Oregon Traditional Arrows, Doug Knight, and had had this idea of making fur arrow shafts uh, some 25 years ago and had some custom equipment built and um, had, had produced shafts at a, you know, uh, moderate level for a few years here and there and then uh the the business was sold kind of changed hands a few times basically it's been in operation full operation for the last 10 years producing uh, some of the best highest quality uh wood arrow shafts out there doug fur doug fur yeah specializing doug fur we've also run some hemlock and some tamarack you know here and there but, this uh, isn't uh I'm, I'm friends with all the sherwood shaft guys and this yep. isn't some mass production arrow factory these guys are like you guys are precise on where you want to pull these trees from the age of these trees oh yeah it for us it starts in the wood we are in the woods we um in terms of a wood product from the species doug fur there's nobody else out there as picky as we are yeah, in terms of it's, what i, I talk I, i've um, talked with some of your business partners and it's like elevation the way the sun hits it it can't grow on a slope because then you've got compression and tension wood on either side that makes a crooked shaft we're we're, we're very uh picky about the wood and, and yeah the other two partners are uh, bob marshall and steve savage some guys with little, i mean a, a ton of archery and bow hunting experience under their belts um and and so i i'd been helping them out along with my dad you know helping out uh in the business for oh since my dad's been involved for about 10 years and and uh here and there and then becoming much more involved the last few years and now taking over dad's uh role in that so 
that's been pretty neat to be a part of um, the archery industry and producing a product that uh, you know that I feel really good about that that folks are you know it's a product that I can get behind and and, and uh, you know recommend two people so hopefully that'll be another podcast i'd really like to get uh, uh the sherwood guys together and tell some hunting stories and talk wood shafts so yeah tell us more about echo archery yeah so um echo archery that was kind of born out of my uh finding you know this uh, renewed passion in archery about uh seven years ago when i discovered self bows and kind of carving out my own wood bow uh, it just suddenly, I, all I wanted to do was shoot arrows and make that next bow. You know, I had had, a, I got a couple under my belt and I'd seen, you know, the, the vast difference from bow one to bow two, that huge improvement. And I'm like, okay, I can start seeing it coming. I'm going to be able to hunt an elk with a bow that I made out of a piece of wood. You know, that's a possibility now. And I was just, that was, it, it consumed my waking hours. You know, I was just reading traditional bow Bibles and, and, and I'm, I, I've got a, I, I spent a lot of time on uh, the internet, and for anybody who's looking for a resource, Primitive Archer has a uh, it's a magazine. They've also got this online forum that's uh, very active. You have questions about yourself, bow you're working on. You post up there, you're going to get a ton of response from a lot of knowledgeable bowyers. So I spent a lot of time on there, and I started to see through the trading posts and stuff that there was a big demand for things like staves and some of these other primitive archery products, and um, that there was room on the market for uh, another supplier of those sort of things. And that was maybe a way for me to, uh, continue this obsession, uh, is, is, was to make it a business. So, so pursued that. And originally it was just kind of selling the, uh, supplies and materials for the hobbyist builder. And then, uh, got to the point where I felt comfortable selling custom bows. Uh, that, that took up a lot of my time and I wanted to um, kind of switch gears there and, and found myself, um, getting asked to teach how to make bows. So, so that kind of led me to where I'm at now, which is focusing on these, uh, bow workshops. So I teach, um, folks four, uh, four to six classes per year. They're four day long workshops where I teach. Uh, and how many people are in this class? Um, anywhere about four to eight is four been, to eight. yeah, I try and keep it around six, but sometimes inevitably end up with a couple more. And over a four days. day period these folks uh they build a self bow from start to finish and they, yeah. le- they leave with a bow yep yep that's that, the the class the focus of the class is to learn how to make a wood bow so when they go home they, they can build a second and a third yeah, yeah and and that's i'd say almost everybody taking the class that's you know that that's what they want out of the class there's a few folks who just kind of hey i just this is kind of a novelty for me and they think they're just gonna make one bow and that's it you sure know, little do they know yeah. But uh, and then they're chasing the dragon. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's been um, really rewarding for me is to see because I get that same experience I had when I first shot that arrow out of wood bow that I made with my own hands. I get to relive that every time somebody finishes a bow in that class and goes out in the back and 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 sticks one of the hay bales with it. So um, that's that's been really rewarding for me, and I've learned so much about bow making kind of second hand by being a part of all these different bows that have been made in mm-hmm. the shop. Uh, and that's, that's really accelerated my understanding of bow making. Well, that, that, that's super awesome guys. Thank you so much for what you guys have done this far for traditional archery self bow guys. Uh, it's manly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, ladies. It's womanly too. It really is. It, it, <laughs> I have a ton of respect for what you guys are doing. Uh, it's next level stuff in, in my book, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, finding myself down that trail. Uh, but thank, thank you guys again. Thank, thank you, you for having us. 
I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. I was fortunate enough to get to spend the weekend with these guys at the Western States Rendezvous in Washington. Shooting arrows, sharing meals, listening to them tell hunting stories around the campfire. These are two totally quality individuals who have a lot to offer traditional archery. And if you have any interest in self-bows, I know after hanging out with these guys for the weekend, I sure do. Uh, they're definitely some of the go-to guys in the self-bow world in my book. I was also fortunate enough to be invited to go hunt whitetails with Clay Hayes and some of his friends, and Carson Brown, Andy Ponce from Addictive Archery, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an awesome opportunity, and I'm looking forward to going out to Idaho this December to hunt whitetails and share a campfire again with these gentlemen. So definitely stay tuned to the podcast this winter. I hope to get another podcast with these guys during the hunt so we can learn more about self-bows, primitive archery, and get some more great hunting stories from these two guys. Also, check me out on social media. I'm on Facebook now and Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, Blueberry. Check me out on my website at tradquest.com. And always, shoot straight.